Welcome to another edition of Talk So Real with Matt Sanzala. This is the podcast where I talk to my friends, and today we got a really old one who I haven't seen in some time. It took a whole solar eclipse to get him over here on this mic in a brand new book. We've got Greg Beats in the house. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to, good to see you again after many, many years. Many. I know, man. It's crazy. I, we were just talking about how our mutual friend Tamara Kowalski used to do a zine called Mwahahaha. I'm not and, sure uh, how many ha 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 I don't remember. Yeah, it was the Yeah. And uh, Greg wrote for that early on. And probably probably my first trip ever to Austin, I think, was with her. And uh, I remember hanging out with you and Jonathan Tobin back in 1990. I think this would have been night, yeah, right, right around South by Southwest time, yep. 1990. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was crazy. Shout out trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... Yeah, very, very interesting year that year. Man, and it was. It was so fun. And you have been covering this Austin scene for a long time. And you've, is this your first book? This is my uh, first one, yeah. Curious I mean, I've, mix I've, of people. I've, I've had uh, like excerpts of things in, right. in uh, other books in the past, but this is my first actual, uh, where, where my name's been on the spine, along with uh, my co-author, Richard Wymark. Yep. We're going to dial him in here shortly, I believe. What, uh... What years does this book cover? Uh, well, it roughly. Co- roughly it covers, uh, it, it, you know, we tried to kind of keep it chronological in the sense of, uh, you know, really we were, we were talking about 90s Austin underground music. So it really it covers 90 to 99, but there uh, definitely is some some bleed because mm-hmm. I think you, you to, to understand what was going on in the 90s, you kind of have to understand what was happening at the end of the 80s too. Sure. And, and really going even further back because in some ways the, the eighties uh, in Austin really gave birth to what happened in the nineties. And a lot of the players were the same uh, as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I saw the butthole servers in Cleveland in 87 and they were like my favorite band at the time, but I didn't know anything about Austin. I pr- may not even have known they were from Austin until I dug in a little deeper. And uh, when I seeing them, that was like, it was way before I'd ever tried acid or any crazy drugs. And I look back at that show and it was like literally like an acid trip. Like it was such a crazy night for my 15 year old self. The first show my mother let me travel to Cleveland for with friends. Wow. Yeah. That, that's a, quite a first show. Cause I, I think I remember seeing them right around that same time period, Oof. like in the fall of 87 at the Ritz. Mm-hmm. And that the, if, if I'm not mistaken, this was the era of the, genital reconstruction oh, yeah. films. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and see, yeah, seeing that, uh, on, on acid or not on acid, yep. um, it was, yeah, quite a, quite an eyeful. I was totally, and it definitely wasn't my first show ever, but it was the first time she let me just go. It was like an hour and a half drive with yeah. friends, you know, which was stupid in a sense. <laughs> yeah. I, I, go I to would, Cleveland, go see the butthole server. <laughs> the other, the other thing I remember about that show is that, you know, I, I guess I was, I think I 18, I was like a freshman in college and, uh, someone actually, after, after we got back from that show, we, uh, we'd gotten into a bad habit of not locking our door, my Mm -hmm. roommate and I in the dorm. And, uh, I immediately crawled into my bed and, you know, passed out and, uh, I woke up several hours later and he was, uh, just cursing. And I was like, what's going on? What happened? And he said, some guy, uh, drunk guy, thought this was his room and got in my bed and pissed himself and wouldn't leave. 
Oh no, <laughs> so, that sounds like Austin. Yeah, back then. and it was just yeah. I mean, it was it, there was yeah, it was just sort of par for the course in some respects. But that's that's what I remember about you know that that butthole surfer show was the genital reconstruction, which I think anybody would remember, and then the uh, the the uh, after the after party with the, the 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 drunk guy. And fortunately, I guess I I was in my bed, he wasn't, and so I guess I got lucky in that regard. Well, we drove in a blizz- <laughs> we we had a blizzard actually, and spun out on I ninety and ended up in the middle of like the median. Jeez, it was crazy, and that was my first time. I was like, I didn't tell my mother that part. Maybe it's just like the you, yeah, you, know, you get that post buttholes whiff of weirdness, and it kind of comes home with you. I remember the strobe lights and the the dancer, and just the rhythmic the rhythm of it was just you know because I was used to going to shows where there's a pit, and the pit's like not a bunch of writhing, like undulating people. Like it was, you know, it was more rowdy. This was like a sort of a pit and I was 15. Yeah. And, but the place was just like writhing on each other, like in sync with this music. And it was just the, the most incredible experience. And coming to Austin, I mean, anybody who knows me knows that my father moved to Houston. When I was eight. I didn't grow up in Houston, but I spent all my summers there and moved there in 89. And so that 1990 South by was probably for sure, my first real trip to Austin, and man, what a contrast, you know, I mean, I went to Sound Exchange in Houston, there was a Sound Exchange here, or I think they were Record Exchange back then. They were probably, they might have still been Record Exchange yeah. at that point, yeah. And then, uh, you know, there were similarities, and bands crossed over, I saw Ed Hall in Houston, I saw all these bands, you know, mostly at the Axiom and places yeah. like that back then, but the feel of coming to Austin back then was incredible. Yeah, there was. I mean, I just, I mean, it sounds a little generic to say, but there was really a very genuine vibe, and it was totally different from anywhere I'd ever been. Well, you know, growing up in and mostly in Houston, but then also in Dallas, uh, and then coming to Austin, uh, it, it definitely. Yeah, you're right. There was definitely a vibe, and you know, just the uh, the terrain itself was mm-hmm. exotic. Just the fact that there were hills. Yep. Um, made it seem different. And the fact that it was a, uh, you know, kind of a much more self-contained uh, college town, not a big sprawled out city, right. uh, at least not at that time. And um, I, I, I remember, you know, in Houston, we would, we would all look at public news yep. uh, to find out what was going on. And uh, one day uh, our mutual friend, Jonathan Tobin, mm-hmm. uh, he spent a fair amount of time in Austin because his uh, dad lived here, still does. And uh, brought brought a copy of the Austin Chronicle back, mm-hmm. and I just remember looking at it and being like, "Wow, there's, you know, you know, six or seven pages of club listings yep. here versus, you know, what we had in public news, which might have been two or three." Yep. Uh, and and just thinking, okay, this is you know much smaller city, but much much more broad music scene. Um, it was very music centric. Yes, you know. it, it was. It, it was music was um, at the time. Uh, if if you were to look at uh, you know a paper like the Chronicle, mm-hmm. um, th- those guys who started it were I think first and foremost film guys. Uh, so the, so they always had uh, quite a bit of, of really solid film coverage. I mean, any movie that came out, they'd they'd run a full length review. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but but at that time. It, it was the it was the music coverage that was really driving things and oh, yeah. and tech was uh, something that might get written about in news like if there was you know uh, 
you know, a deal with uh, the city's going to be spending money to bring uh, something like Cimitech or something like that to town. That would, re- you know, there, there, there was no interactive coverage or multimedia coverage as it, as it was called back then. Right. At that point. And I mean, we talked a little before this about coming up in Houston and the, going to shows. It wasn't a central district where you were just walking from club to club or going to shows. You were driving 20 to 30 minutes to, like, if you went to the Axiom in the 80s, there were, like, pit bulls in the street. And, like, it was scary. It was fun, too. It was a great – I went to the Axiom five nights a week at a certain time in my life probably, and then emos, you know. But, like, that was a Apocalypse Monster Club, like you are talking about. That was, like – that was north. No, it was south. Apocalypse it was, was south? Apocalypse was uh, actually right across from the former Ellington Air Force Base. Ah, okay, Down off yeah. of Highway 3. Yeah, great. Uh, so, yeah. So, it was, I mean, all of these places from, for most of us who were, you know, interested in music in Houston, yeah. all, all these places were a long drive. Yeah. And um, I think about some of my friends here who grew up in Houston and, uh you know, I grew up Southwest Houston, Bel Air area. Um, but there, there'd be, you know, friends of mine who I've been friends with here for years and we all consider ourselves Houstonian types, but, uh, but they grew up in 1960 area yep. by the airport and it might as, might as well have been a completely different town for how far it was. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, a uh, and you, you weren't, you didn't have uh, maps on your phones either. You went and drove into these weird neighborhoods and we're like, ah, there's the punks. <laughs> you might have a, yeah, you might have <laughs> or a, a strip mall or. Yeah, I mean, I think in the Apocalypse Monster Club, they, you know, they they put out flyers and they sort of had a, they had their their, their hand drawn logo at the bottom of the flyer and a hand drawn map that showed you how to get there. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think it was in like this industrial warehouse strip, and it was like third warehouse, you know, down toward the the, the you know. So I mean, it was it was literally yeah, it was everything and and a lot of the things I think it's even now. Uh, in Houston, a mm-hmm. lot of the most culturally significant places are sort of in these out of the way strip malls, and yep. you kind of have to know where you're going to find them. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely it was a, that was a big difference between Houston and Austin because you'd come here and it'd be this this big gathering of people around Red River and Sixth Street, and back when Sixth Street was more punk, you know, more live original music centric, and that sort of thing. And that was you came in. When did you move here? Uh, I moved here in 1987, I guess. Okay. In the, yeah. The summer 1987, uh, came, came directly out of high school. I, I finished my, my last final and, uh, drove to Austin and started summer school the following maybe Tuesday. So it was like Friday I was in high school, Tuesday I was in college. At and, UT? Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, my SAT scores weren't all that. So I had to you had to go, I had to go to summer school to get into UT. And at the mm-hmm. time they had what was called provisional admissions. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you did okay in summer school, they would let you in as a regular student in the fall. So it worked, it worked out well for me. I know eventually they stopped doing that. And it's, mm-hmm. it's I mean, everything about UT is much more, uh, you know, much more aiming toward a, a elite, I guess now it's much harder to get Man. into. I didn't realize it until, you know, my kids became a certain age and they were, they didn't go to UT, but my, and my nieces, they were all so stressed. They're like, there's no way I'll get into UT. I'm like, you did great. What do you mean? She's yeah. like, there's no way. And it's, <laughs> and I think now, you know, the other thing is that, I mean, yeah. tuition was still, uh, state. It was still, it was still regulated. It was still mm-hmm. somewhat sustained by the, by the state. And I, I think it was 2005 when tuition got 
deregulated, which is not something we talk about in the book, but when you talk about the transformation of Austin, I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, and, and we talk about how, you know that how that kind of started in the nineties. Right. Uh, I, I think you can you can look to things like uh, you know, tuition deregulation. Okay, now now if we're going to charge this much more. Uh, for people to come to UT, okay, well, that's going to attract a different sort of uh, clientele, mm-hmm. so to speak. And, uh, you know, and, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a much different school than it was, uh, you know, back in back at the late 80s, early 90s. Much different school, much different city. It's yeah. been, we've seen a lot of transformation here. I've been here, I lived here in 95 and then in 98 for most of those years and a little bit of 99. And then I came back here in 07, mm. 08, beginning of 08. Okay. So I got to experience quite a lot of, of things here. And I always say, like, back, you know, there was no such thing as a $6 taco. And if you knew the person that worked there, you probably didn't pay for it. You know what I mean? Like, this was such a, like, little hippie punk enclave. It was way more towny. In a sense, when you got, you know, you go to your your boy's place, you come in from Houston, go stay with some dudes you knew from, you know, in high school or college or whatever, and they live in a house, and there's like four of them paying 200 bucks a piece, and they have like a big yard, and that sort of thing, like, man, I mean, I imagine like, <clears throat> it's, when on Reddit, somebody, you know, they're always putting, what do you miss most about the old Austin? And I was like, $400 rent. Yeah, <laughs> which is nowhere is four hundred anymore. But my gosh, it it yeah the the I when I moved here, Austin was one of the least expensive cities in mm-hmm. the United States in which to live, and um, you really got a lot of to me, you got a lot of value for for your money at mm-hmm. the time because you know you could live relatively cheaply if you lived with a bunch of people like you're talking about. Um, you, you could subsist on a on a. Uh, uh, kind of a menial job or, or mm-hmm. a service-oriented job, and and do all right, and still have time to, um, you know, go play in like three bands yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And so it, it was, uh, uh, and and then when you talk about it being a towny place, uh, you know, this is at the time we're writing about. It was really before uh, the, the internet was really happening. Yeah, it's just it was really just getting started. I think just getting its its legs in the early '90s. And so, you, you know, you, you promoted things by uh, putting posters up around town. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scene itself, I think, was very insular. You could have bands that could, you know, fill a room in Austin and then would go down the road to Houston and nobody knew mm-hmm. uh, who they were. So it was very much about, like, uh, you know, the, there, there's, a, there's a group of people and we're here to entertain this group of people and... Uh, th- this one small, very contiguous area is sort of this own, its own self-contained ecosystem yep. for music. Yeah, and we definitely had a scene in Houston and, and regulars and people that you know we all knew. But and I think a lot of that centered punk-wise and metal-wise centered around record exchange or sound exchange to an extent. And vinyl edge, there was vinyl lots edge, of great yeah. record stores. But I mean, that was like always a central place to find out about things. But coming here, I mean, I'd say straight up being a 19 year old dude or 20 something coming here man i noticed like the girls like there was packs of like went girls at the shows and they were everybody came to all the shows and you come back two weeks later and be like i remember seeing them at the last you know what i mean it was like you could really see the community and the characters the curious mix of people 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you know, the, definitely, definitely onto something there. I mean, I, the, I think one of the things I started noticing about Austin over time is that yeah, you would see the same people. Uh, from place to place, from show to show, and you, you might see the same person in Sound Exchange that you saw uh, at, at Emos or Liberty Lunch. And even if you never uh, spoke to these people, um, you know, it might be that you'd see them coming down the street, and then you might start nodding at them. Yeah. And uh, so I think even now there 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 are people I'll occasionally formally meet for the first time, and uh, uh, you know they'll be like, oh, well, we've never actually talked to each other, but we've been running in the same circles for a long time, and you know, probably bumped into each other and, you know, giving each other the nod, but it was, it's, it, it, and I think maybe this is something that is interesting about Austin that you might not see necessarily in every place you would go, but Austin is a, it's a, and I think it, to, to some degree it remains so today, but it's a very, uh, uh, open and, and friendly place to be. I, I think it's, a, it's the kind of place where even if you're a little bit introverted, um, you, you can walk into a place and sidle up to people and and start up conversations and develop lifelong friendships relatively easily. Um, I don't know that I, you know, I know my wife's from New England. She's you know, and she's kind of like, well, it's really not that way uh, in New England. I can't I can't speak as much to it because I've always lived in Texas. Mm. But oh, but, it's different. Yeah, yeah. But I've been, I've been to New England and I've spent enough time there to know it's different. I will say this. Um, I agree with you because it's definitely a lot cooler in Texas as far as the vibe and being able to just talk to somebody, saddle up somewhere and talk to somebody, you know, and it's, it is different. But when I had a dog, I very much so noticed the new influx of people by the way they would react. Like if I see you and we're walking our dogs in the morning, I'm going to say good morning to you. I mean, we're not in the middle of Manhattan with 50,000 people around us. I'm walking down a street in Allendale that doesn't even have a sidewalk. And there you are. I'm going to nod and say, good morning. And I noticed when I started like startling people, like they'd kind of like, wait, what? Like I just said, good morning. And you, but you could tell they moved here from a different place and weren't really ready yeah, for just something that simple. And I was like, you better get ready for Austin. And you go out to the taco truck and some dude that lives behind, it's going to be coming up to talk to you for an hour. I mean, back in those days, like I tell people, Slacker was reality. Like Slacker was like a reality show practically, well, man. You, you know, you again, you know, you talk about people who you you just see out mm-hmm. and about. I mean, when when that movie came yeah. out, you, you kind of you knew all these people. Yeah. I mean, everybody in the movie was somebody who you either knew or you knew of uh if you were even marginally connected to mm-hmm. the to to the uh to the music scene. And uh and and they they weren't I mean they, they were they were acting, but they weren't really right. acting. I mean, I think a lot of those characters were, were just built on uh, what, what Richard Linkletter had, had observed. And, and that really, it, yeah, it really does kind of capture what it was like to, to, uh, to, to mm-hmm. live in Austin at the time. And I'm sure that, you know, there are other cities that are similar to Austin, you know, college, college cities uh, where, where that kind of similar vibe existed. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it was a, another thing we do talk about um, is is sort of, you know, there were people who liked slacker and there were people who just didn't get it. Yeah. Um, And, and I remember, you know, going, going to see that movie with a date uh, not long after it came out. And and I, I totally got it. And I was like, yeah, this is what I like about this town. And she was just like, I, you know, (laughs) didn't understand it. And I'm like, well, you know, I I guess, uh, 
We shake hands and part ways here. Man, you know? <laughs> I, I went to see I went to see Slacker with Christina Carter at the River Oaks Theater. Wow. The musician and record exchange employee back in the day. And we both just laughed like crazy. Yeah. Like it was crazy to watch that. It's a, and, and thank goodness we have it now. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, if for no other reason, uh, it, it's just a great time capsule of what things, uh, what things looked like. But even, you know, from, from my perspective, everything about that movie, uh, uh, you know, it, it was inspiring the, the mm-hmm. way, the, the, the way in which the, you know, narrative, uh, flowed around, uh, the characters themselves. I mean, I just, you know, it, it, it really, uh, you know, made me think, okay, well, this is, this is kind of, this is what I like about where I live. Mm -hmm. Um, this is kind of, you know, this vibe I think is, is what I kind of want to, uh, you know, be a part of and and continue to be a part of, I guess. Um, and, and yeah, so it was just, yeah, it was, it was a good, it it was a good time all around. And I, but I don't think anybody would have thought, uh, you know, if you would have gone to see it at the Dolby theater before, Yep. Uh, Orion picked it up that it would have necessarily become anything beyond, uh, you know, something that would have been very, very, uh, uh, you know, narrowly yeah, uh, focused. I, mean, I don't think anybody would have thought it would be something that, um, you know, and certainly, you know, uh, Richard Linklater was talented. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I think everybody knew that. Uh, everybody knew that he was super into film and, and, you know, doing the, uh, the Austin film society and everything. But, um, but but I don't know that anybody could have predicted it would become like a touchstone, no. uh, as it did. I mean, how do you even comprehend it if you hadn't didn't see it, you know, feel it, and be you know, kind of see that this is what it's like here? I mean, it's like, I, like I say, it was like a reality show if you knew what it was what was really going on, you know? Yeah, like it really captured that time. It 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 def yeah definitely did, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's, it, I, I was probably on the younger side of the demographic of, of Slacker at the time. I think most of the people who were uh, in that movie were at least a little bit older than I was. Maybe a few might have been younger, but mo- most of them were just a little bit older. But they, uh, but that was what we were, you know, when, when I think about what we were doing in the 90s, it was really predicated on what had, what had already gotten started here uh, in the 80s with, uh, you know, with bands like the Big Boys and, uh, you know, bands like the Dicks and the Buttle Surfers. Um, so it was, it was definitely, uh, you know, there, there was, there was precedent. It wasn't just mm-hmm. like, Oh, we're, we're just making it up as we go along. Yeah. I mean, we're of the age that kind of just missed. We got, we have all the albums and we saw the shows later, but that, that 80s scene to have seen, I can't imagine. I mean, I never saw black flag, you know, I never saw, I did see the butthole servers in 87. Okay. But I didn't see the Dicks. I didn't see like, a lot of that stuff till way later, you know, maybe 80, probably beginning around 87 for me, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw the dicks when they reunited. Right. right, right, right. Uh, but I, yeah, I never saw the big boys. I, I mm-hmm. did, did spend a little bit of time around, uh, around biscuit. Uh, you know, the band I was in at the, you know, back in the nineties, we opened for swine King a few times and wow. I got to interview him. Um, so I, so I, I knew him, uh, va- you know, kind of on a, a very, uh, va- you know, kind of just acquainted level. Um, but, but yeah, he was, you know, I think a lot of what he was doing, a lot of what uh, Tim Kerr was doing, um, all those guys uh, just, you know, the, the, this notion of like, you know, get out there and do it yourself mm-hmm. um, and, and just really leaning into it was uh, stylistically and creatively. And I think, you know, even ethically, 
what was underpinning what we were trying to to do mm -hmm. and uh and yeah it was and, and we were trying to have fun because you know For sure. that's what they that's what they were all about too the most fun i was having back then was you know i loved hip-hop and punk rock and different types of music i had big boys albums i knew who tim kerr was and i liked him but i didn't know as deeply you know back coming from pennsylvania and houston so i didn't know everything but i did uh i actually interviewed him at the axiom a long time ago and mark twistworthy has it on vhs oh wow but uh i don't it's never come out and maybe it shouldn't i don't know but bad mother goose for me was incredible because first of all it was a lot of fun the music was cool I never saw anything like that, you know, and I honestly didn't like a lot of the other funk bands that much. It depended who it was, but Bad Mother Goose was a cut above to me. And coming to Austin and seeing them with like a band and then the Cooley Girls. Oh, yeah, the Cooley Girls. Yeah. yeah. Like, and, you know, DJ Casanova would be a part of that. And uh, I remember one show in particular. It was outside somewhere. I couldn't tell you what the venue, but it was around Red River. And it was Bad Mother Goose, uh, No Dose from Houston, which was Def Jam Blaster, who's a super legend of Houston, and uh, and the Cooley Girls. Wow. And that was such a party. And the crowd was like a mix of Black Austin and like women dancing at the front of the stage, like nuts, crazy, you know, white girl dance in front of the stage. And the dude, like, it was just a funny. Another curious mix of people. I have to, I can come back to that term because in Houston, I've talked about this a couple of times on this podcast. Like to be honest with you, things were a lot more segregated, especially if you went to the rap club in Houston, it was black until the Vatican started booking like ice tea or Cypress Hill or somebody like that. But if you saw too short in the eighties or even early nineties there, you were in the North side, you know, there was no like real crossover at all. Bad Mother Goose came, they came to the Axiom. Possibly numbers. Yeah. You know, something like that. And that was totally more of like a funk night. It'd be with Sprawl or, who I, I like Sprawl too, or Retarded Elf. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Sprawl, you know, uh, you know, they were, uh, they, they, you know, they, they came here a lot. And I yeah. remember, do you remember a band called Slackface? Yes. Yeah, Slackface was, I, I think, one of the, I remember seeing them open for Bad Mother Goose and then, Slackface moved to New York City, and I remember their their last show before they moved was the first time I saw Sprawl. They came here, and and those guys are you know friends actually. Yeah, the guy of course. Who, yeah, the the guy who plays sax in my band now, Clay Embry, who played in Brown Hornet. Oh man, uh, you know he he was one of the guys in Sprawl. So I've I've kept up you know kept up with them uh, up up till today really yeah of <laughs> so, course i mean dave yeah. dove still puts out dave all dove the, is still doing a lot of stuff, shows right jazz shows i mean nick cooper and the free radicals last album was amazing yeah you so, know so there were the yeah it's it's good to I, mean, I think that's that's one of the pleasing things about you know 30 years down the road and still seeing people uh yeah. doing you know and not, and not just doing the same stuff they were doing before but just having grown in different directions that you wouldn't have necessarily been able to predict yep uh, that many years ago but um yeah, it's it, it's interesting you say that about Houston uh, feeling, you know, feeling a little less segregated than Austin. I, you know, I, Austin, well, I think show wise it was more segregated. Okay, but definitely, especially now too, Houston's way more open. And now that there's a center city in Houston too, there wasn't really that so much. So you see more people coming together, but you know, but I mean, I meant show wise, definitely. Okay. Like, yeah, you know. yeah, Austin is, you know, and, and I think this is one of the things that. Um, you know, when when you talk about the Cooley Girls, I mean, I remember seeing them. They'd, they'd be on like a a rock bill at yep. the at the Cannibal Club, 
yep. back in the day. And it, and it was, uh, you know, seeing that kind of uh, cross-pollination, I think, was always, uh, you know, a, a great thing to see and, um, you know, a hopeful thing to see. I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. that it always uh, continued quite like we would have liked it to. I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about... Um, and the curious mix of people book uh, about the fact that there, there was definitely a preponderance of, of women who were, uh, you know, central to the scene. And I think their, their presence made it, uh, just, just a much more, um, creative and and supportive, uh, environment than it might've been Mm -hmm. otherwise. Uh, you know, the, the, the record on, um, you know, having, having people from, multiple races i think you know those of us i think a lot of us would have hoped that there would would have been more of that uh than there there actually was Mm -hmm. so i don't want to i don't want to sugarcoat it too much and of course austin i think even now still kind of has uh you know it's just it's a very uh when i moved here it was it was a, a west and east city. No, thirty five was like a border. Thirty five was like a border, and if you went, I remember um, the. Uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of this restaurant, Eastside Cafe. Mm-hmm. Eastside Cafe was a restaurant, really, a really good restaurant for many years. But when uh, when they first opened, um, they actually had a security guard in the parking lot at all times mm-hmm. because they knew that white people from the west side weren't used to coming over to the east side whether it was day or night mm-hmm. and they they needed to have that extra bit of uh reassurance and then of course as, as time has gone on the east side has kind of gotten very uh gentrified um and and you don't have that you know that that dynamic has has changed uh but but i think the you know the the, the segregation kind of still persists it's just sort For of sure. taking a different shape I think I was really lucky in the 90s because I had a radio show, like a hip-hop show at KPFT in Houston, and it was had to have been end of 92 or 93. It was sometime in 93 I met Andre Walker here in, here in Austin. He brought a group called Sociopath Left who were from South Austin to my show, and uh, rest in peace, Chris uh, Crop Diggy. He's one of my you know best friends to me. He passed to this day. He's one of my favorite people I've ever known, and one of the guys went to the right <laughs> and doesn't, <laughs> yeah. hasn't spoken to me in a long time. And then DJ Spinner T was like incredible DJ and they became friends of mine. And Andre had been passed the torch from Kier Worthy to book the one or two hip hop shows at South by Southwest for, and this was not the, for the 94 edition. And uh, so when I'd come up here, I would not only go see Kenny Capello and Mike Flannery. I would also go see Andre Walker and he'd take me to DJ Casanova's studio in his kitchen or, we'd be in the little shed behind South by listening to tapes that people submitted. Like me, Andre also rest in peace. DJ Southpaw was there. Uh, other KZI people, you know, we had like a little contingency of folks who were trying to decide, figure out who was going to come for the hip hop, the hip hop show at South by that year. And, and 94 was crazy because it, it was the first Gravedigger show ever. Yeah. So yeah. Rizzo and Prince Paul, but Prince, Prince Paul was coming to South by as a conference before, anybody like Prince Paul and Joe, the butcher, there was people, Dante Ross was here before there were really a lot of shows. Kier Worthy brought ultramagnetic MCs and YZ and Deccan and dub team got banned for smoking a joint and <laughs> things like that, like the history of that. But I was so lucky that, um, I got to meet Andre and he brought me in for that experience and got to see like, you know, Gibbons park and 
of things going on over there in the early 90s as well as West Campus and Red River. Yeah. And it was like a really cool, like coming here was always really special. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's the thing. I mean, I, you know, I think that there were, you know, like when you talk about Gibbons Park, I mean, there were, there was a whole thing going on over there Mm -hmm. that very few people uh, who were on Red River uh, really, really knew about uh, with, with some exceptions for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, someone could write a book about that. I mean, I think Man. that, you know, the, the whole, um, you know, the, the, yeah, every, everything that was going on on the east side. And you mentioned KPFT. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think about given Houston's size and scope, the fact that you had a station like KPFT that was, uh, you know, kind of a checkerboard format. There was kind of, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's kind of everything from. Pretty radical. Um, very radical. I mean, you had you had uh, uh, the uh, you know, Chuck Roast and yep. him doing the, the hardcore show, and then you know you had the uh, the prison show where people would yes. call call in and uh, you know talk. That was met. so intriguing. Yeah, when I was a kid, <laughs> that was yeah. intriguing to put that on. You yeah, know? and then Wildenstein, you know, the gay yep. gay and lesbian music. I mean, it, it, again, being like a little kid, uh, gr- you know, growing up and listening to this mm-hmm. uh, in a in an enclave where just the, the, that sort of thing just wasn't talked about. Uh, and, and then alongside uh, KTRU, KTRU yep. at Rice University, I mean, um, for, for a city of that size, having those two radio stations was, uh, was fundamental. And, you know, in, in, in Austin, I mean, we kind of talk about this, you know, in, in the early nineties, uh, radio here was, was, Pretty KDRX was on TV if you had cable. Yeah, was it like, even it, on ninety one point seven in those days? Well, not really. I mean, it oh. was it, it. You know, at the time, it was KTSB. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was cable radio. So yeah, you had to if you wanted to hear it on your stereo, you had to plug in a splitter that came out of your. Yeah. You know, you'd get one side of your TV, one side into the back of your stereo, and uh, you, you could also. It, it was interesting because at the time, Austin Cablevision um, had had. KTSB on there, but then they also had like a classical music station yep. from Chicago. And then one of the fun things you could listen to if you'd been kind of doing a little bit of tipple late at night or what have you is you could listen to the atomic clock. That's right. Yeah. That's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. So it was, uh, you know, but, but, but that was like a thing, cable yeah. radio. And I think people thought oh, that dude, this, when I got here, anytime I got to somebody's house, that was my first question. Do you have cable? Cause I wanted to hear that. And I wanted to watch the crazy guy screaming about the government. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, there was, and this no, is, a, I mean, uh, Alex Jones, before he went over the board, when we were a kid to see that dude come from Houston and all of a sudden you come to weird Austin and there's that weirdo on TV. It was hilarious. I'm sorry, man, whatever. I probably didn't even know half the stuff he was talking about, but there were a lot of weirdos. There were, there were a and lot, there was of, way, a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, there's a documentary out called, I think when we were live is what it's called. And it's all about the, the history of, uh, Austin access television uh, and, and yeah, it was a cornucopia, it was a cornucopia of, of not only, you know, kind of unhinged political religious rants, but also you had, uh, Car- Carmen Banana, who was, uh, a, um, a, a, basically a guy who would dress up as Carmen Banana, uh, Carmen Miranda, Miranda, but then would give, uh, but it, and it was, it was a, uh, he'd give safe sex tips. Wow. He would give safe, se- <laughs> you know, safe sex tips and then do, do some singing and then, uh, a recipe that incorporated the bananas in one way or another. Um, another very popular show back in the nineties was called, uh, ask Livia live, 
which was, uh, and it was a woman who basically would call her on the phone and she'd answer the phone and say, uh, hi, you're on Ask Livia Live. What's your problem? Yes. And then they would, yeah. And so it was, you <laughs> I'm know. I'm pretty sure I called that. Yeah, it was. We, no, I, I would kind of decide where I was going to stay, who I was going to stay with as if they had cable or not. Like it, some of these kids were too cool to have a TV. And I was like, no, I want to, if I'm in Austin and we're going to get home at 2 a.m., I'm going to be watching this till about four or five. <laughs> well, and then, and then really the, the, to, to me for music, it was, yeah, you know, lots it was, of music. well, it was Dave, you know, Dave Pruitt, the, mm-hmm. the, sh- the shows he was doing, uh, capsize and raw time. And he's still doing this. I mean, he, he is still, uh, you know, finding new bands and, Man. and putting them on TV. And it's like, in a lot of the bands that he has, uh, uh captured over the years, and that's, that's the only recorded evidence that Man. in some cases that these guys have ever, ever existed. And, you know, I think Dave kind of, if you had to say that he had a, like a, uh, uh, you know, just like a cornerstone of, of his, of, of his music, it would probably be uh, the, the metal scene in the back room and everything. But, you know, but he was also getting the punk stuff and he was getting, uh, you know, folk acts and uh, in hip hop, you know, he captured all of this stuff. And uh, I think he did the last televised interview with Bill Hicks. What? Uh Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's online. Is there an is, archive oh, yeah. of all his stuff? Oh yeah, stuff? no, he's got a it's lot of all, stuff. Okay, he's got a lot of stuff online, but he, but and he's, but he's still doing it. Yeah. And uh, to to me, well, I mean, again, cable wasn't two hundred dollars a month back then. That's true. <laughs> but but a lot of it, fortunately, you know, you can stream it now. You can find it's on streaming YouTube, yeah. and, and uh, so yeah, so I I, I think. Um, it, at some point, you know, there there's an Austin Music Hall of Fame, and Dave, Dave Pruitt absolutely belongs in it because he. Um, yeah, he's one of these people who's kind of been behind the scenes and, and doing all this doc, doc, documentary work, and he's been just doing it for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And, his, yeah, his body of work is is uh, is formidable, to say the least. Right. Yeah. Well, tell me about how this all came together with you and Richard Weimark. Who has messaged me saying he's feeling under the weather and oh, we can no. handle it? He doesn't want to dial in, he says. That's too but, bad. Uh, I first... Did I mean was this book always in the works? Because I got the zines back in I think twenty twenty. Was that just like a how much of the book is is from the zines, or was that just a precursor? Tell me a little about that. Well, it, it, the, uh, the 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 project itself actually predates my involvement in it. And it he want, he was a documentary. Yeah, it started because he's it, a filmmaker too. Yeah, well, it's it, it kind of started with uh, with with Chepo Pena. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you're from Austin, you know, you might know Chepo is the, uh, the bass player of Sincola and yep. of, uh, the Austin, uh, the Austin version of Gomez. Uh, he's, he's played for many, many other bands as well. Uh, but he had the idea of doing a documentary about Austin, uh, punk rock in the nineties, uh, and started talking about this with Richard. Richard is a, is a really, uh, solid, uh, uh, photographer, videographer, who, who incidentally actually worked on Dave Pruitt's show right. uh, for, for uh, a while and, and would, would credit a lot of the work that he's gotten since then. And he's been all over the world filming. Uh, mm-hmm. Got a good music club. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that those two started working on what they thought would be a single feature leak documentary uh, back in maybe 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that kind of went went on for a while. They they went uh, to different places around the country, mostly filming people in Austin. But for mm-hmm. people who'd moved, they went to L.A. and uh, other points uh, around the country filming people. And uh, and 
I think when I came in, I mean, they, they'd interviewed me uh, early on in the process, but um, it, it, at one point I started transcribing some of these interviews for him. And as we were going through it, it was, you know, Richard and I would talk and, uh, you know, I think it, it, it became apparent that just reading through these transcripts that, that this would actually make a good oral history in the style of something like Legs McNeil's mm-hmm. Please Kill Me uh, book. And um, so that was, so then, you know, this, this seedling of an idea for a book kind of came up and uh, Richard, I mentioned it to some, uh, some folks out there and, and eventually uh, we got a meeting with uh, the, the uh, good folks over at UT Press and uh, talked with them about it a little bit. And that was kind of how the book came up. And then mm-hmm. uh, alongside all these other things that are going on, Richard decides that, you know, we also should have a zine. And, and not just like, you know, not a blog, an actual physical zine that you have to go down to someplace and mm-hmm. pick up or you get it in the mail. And uh, so Richard's been kind of the engine behind, uh, well, really behind all of this, but definitely behind the zine. And so the zine has kind of, uh, you know, picked some of the things that, that were captured for the documentary as well as some of the things that we captured for the book. And it, it just so happened that the book kind of crossed the, uh, well, I mean, the zine, the zine came out first, but the you know, the book actually leapfrogged over the documentary in terms of right. uh, finishing first, but he's still working on the documentary and now we're kind of, envi- he's vi- envisioning it as a uh, multi-chapter type of piece. And I think nice. the first, uh, the first two that, that I think are going to probably hit will be the the one that he did about the centering around the, the club, the Cavity Club, which was a short-term club that lasted from like maybe 90, 91 to 93, but mm-hmm. was very instrumental in kind of giving uh, the people from the the 90s kind of their own place to evolve and then the blue flamingo which was a uh, little uh, you know a couple of doors down from the cavity on red river right the corner of seventh and red river that was uh, a kind of a down market uh, a gay cross-dressing bar uh, that um, you know we were fortunate enough to have uh, miss laura rest in peace uh, who owned it and was familiar with Dave Herman, another rest in peace, who uh, was one of the people behind the cavity. And uh, when the cavity shut down, Miss Laura kind of took in a lot of the uh, bands mm-hmm. and they started having bands. So it, it would be uh, like Trail of Dead was birthed out of there. Yeah. Probably. So it would be it would be it would be a, you know, is a, you know, kind of a, a gay trans bar by day um, and then a uh, and then a punk rock bar by night. Man. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I remember those days and the cavity was the spot. To come to when you, I'd come up here, I was like, that was everybody played the cavity. Well, it was for for a time, it was definitely it. I mean, yeah. there there was uh, you know the Cannibal uh, was a great club. Was the Cannibal on Sixth? It was. It was yeah. at I believe three oh six East Six. Yeah. yeah, I remember. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting because uh, in twenty twenty, I went back to my hometown to take care of my mother for a while, and uh, we all know what happened in twenty twenty with the pandemic, with Trump, with George Floyd, with just so many traumatic things going on and the confusion and the feelings. And I totally turned off my Twitter, my Instagram, my Facebook. I had, I had my LinkedIn sort of, but I had no social media. I kept LinkedIn just in case maybe someday I'll get a job, maybe. And uh, Richard and I, we, you know, we were always in touch here and there and I think he had just put something out maybe before I'd got off mine or something. And I was like, Oh, this looks cool, man. This is great. I'm up at my mom. And then I ended up going to my mother's and he asked for my address and started sending me the zine. So it was like, I was offline 
focus on the family, but I still got this weird little zine that kept me connected to, you know, Austin. And it was talking about the part that I liked. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Richard, uh, you know, as I may have said this earlier, he's kind of like the engine behind this all. He's mm-hmm. the one. He's the one who really has done the most to like, uh, you know, connect those threads together. And you know, when there, where there's been you know someone who wow we lost touch with them, haven't found them in a while. Richard's been really good about being able to uh, find them. But the, I think the, uh, you know, the the zine uh, that that was yeah that was all his idea. And I think at the at the time. Uh, given everything that was going on in, in uh, mm-hmm. 2020, we'd already started working on the book uh, not long before that. Um, but, but it was really, uh, you know, a, a, a real salve to, to be doing that mm-hmm. uh, during that period of time, 20 and 21. Um, because you, yeah, you'd, you'd get to, you know, have a, have a zoom call with somebody and uh, talk with them. And, and all of us were, sitting at home, you know, and, and just kind of getting by, but then you'd kind of get to talk a little bit about the, the old times. And, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I remember actually, yeah, we talked about KTSB slash KVRX a little bit earlier, but, um, we actually had a, uh, an online, uh, college radio reunion of sorts. Um, and, and so there were people on that call who wow. I, I haven't, you know, haven't seen in real life and, uh, many years and actually one one person in particular i'm thinking of who uh uh since passed away um he was actually the guy who organized it he, he may have already known what was going on at the time when he did mm-hmm. that but it was you know it, it was so nice to be able to uh to, to connect uh, mm-hmm. in that way even though we couldn't actually be to who was that uh this was a gentleman named will samuels and okay. will was one of the he was one of these guys who uh everybody loved it at this at the station um sometimes there was a bit of a rift between the people who were there to, to, to you know the, the dj types who were there to just play music and then the, the news people there who tended to be like journalism majors who were looking to get a career uh you know and sometimes even within the music people there would be you know you know the, no, no, kpft was all fights all the time yeah it was you know <laughs> it was conflict it, it inside was, those walls nonstop. exactly and, and and i look back on it and it was all just about you know stuff that was very uh, mostly about you know stuff that was not long-term significant in, mm-hmm. in any way and and some of it i just feel foolish for ever having taken part in but 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 will was one of these guys who everybody just just loved and he was a uh he would he would always take the morning shift and so mm-hmm. people liked him just for that because it's like, here's an experienced DJ who'll do the morning shift. Everybody else was a bunch of night owls. Yep. And he would do uh, he, he would do this kind of like a, a college radio version of a morning of a morning show. So he would do things like uh, I think at some point there was, uh, you know, like one of the Playboy centerfolds actually went to UT and he got her to come on and do an interview, wow. which, which seemed like a real get. For, for us, because again, we were college, you know, college, sure. we were college radio, we were cable radio. So at any given time, there might be like maybe five to 10 people listening. Uh, he would also do this recurring bit where he would uh, call the uh, phone in the elevator at the Perry Castaneda library and just, you know, to start talking to whoever picked up. Um, so he was just a great guy. And he, he was from New Orleans and he later uh, moved, moved back to new Orleans, opened a bakery there. Uh, he also ran co I think co-ran a record label there where, uh, the, the, the trumpeter Kermit Ruffins, mm-hmm. uh, was on for a while. Um, so he, he stayed in, you know, stayed involved in music for, for a really long time, but he was just, yeah, 
one of the one of these great guys who um, you know definitely was taken from us uh, way way too early. Uh, but the, but a lot. I, I think there's just a lot of people who I met uh, during my time uh, in college radio where you know I'm, I'm still friends with them now, and they were just very formative friendships. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that, or, or in some cases, that friendship beget another friendship uh, that that still persists in one way or another. And it, and it was just like all of us coming together out of this shared love of of uh, music, mm-hmm. and then. Um, you know, I, I occasionally have the opportunity to talk to uh, Kevin Turf, who was one of the kind of one of the founders, if you will, of, of KTSB. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the head of the student radio task force, uh, which was an adjunct of the student government at UT. And, and so it was that, you know, the agitation that came out of that group that ended up beginning uh, KTSB and then later KBRX. Uh, but you know, when, whenever I get a chance to talk to Kevin, I mean, it's, you know, I always think about that and I think about like, wow, you know, it's the, uh, it, it, it's not just the music. It's the fact that, you know, we were all there working together and you talk about this, the, the, uh, squabbles that you would have at, mm-hmm. at, K, at KPFT and, uh, you know, kind of learning your way around those things, learning when to, you know, when, when to, you know, stand firm on one thing or when, to, you know, when to be more, co- you know, compromising and, uh, uh, it was a good lesson, good life lesson just to, you know, I, I, I tell Kevin when I talk to him, it's like, I, you know, pretty much every day uh, I'm, I'm using some of the people skills that, yeah. that I learned uh, in my time from, uh, from working there. But, you know, and of course, one of the big struggles with KTSB, KVRX was the fact that they were competing uh, for that frequency, right. 91.7, which was the last non-commercial frequency available in Austin at the time. Uh, with with KOOP or co-op and that was a big deal um, that you know that Jim Ellinger he was kind of the uh, the, the founder of, uh, of what would become co-op um, you know and, and there was a there was a ton of back and forth there was a, a lot of a lot of press a lot of uh, uh, you know they had their lawyers and you know KTSB had their lawyers KTSB was you know had the the might of UT uh, behind it Um and, and I, th- I think within the radio station itself, within KTSB, there were, there were some people who uh, thought that, that KTSB should be going for the whole enchilada, uh, get, get the whole frequency. And then there were other people who really felt that, well, you know, UT does already have the license for one radio station, which was KUT at the time. Uh, yes, students need, uh, you know, the, it, you know we, we really do want a student radio station, but you know, what about the students at, uh, you know, Houston Tillotson and Concordia and mm-hmm. what have you. And, uh, and, and so I think there were some people who thought that, uh, you know, having some sort of compromise, uh, would be a better, uh, be- better outcome. And, and some of those people actually, uh, you know, started talking mm-hmm. informally with, with the people at, at co-op and, uh, the fact that they were able to, you know, with, with some, some cajoling from, I guess, the judge who was seeing the case, but also just, you know, uh, the, the, the fact that they were, everybody was able to sit down at a table and, and hash out a, an agreement to share the frequency, which was really, uh, you know, pretty much unprecedented, not, not completely unprecedented, but I think in mm-hmm. terms of something that's now been on the air for, uh, you know, nearly 30 years, uh, de- definitely unprecedented in that regard. And you think about, you know, so, so one thing, you know, when we talk about Austin and how Austin was, you know, might have been better in some ways back then, um, 
one way it was not better back then was in radio. I mean, I think ra- radio-wise, we, this is a, definitely a much richer uh, you know, place than it, than it was back then as a result of uh, both those stations, KB, KBRX and KOOP. I love independent radio to this day. I mean, I probably use TuneIn more than I use Spotify, to be honest. Like, And I listen to BBC Six and things like that on, you know, as far as on my phone. But I still have analog receiver in this room. I have an analog radio on my dresser in the bedroom. Like, I still love to and, uh, to discover music that way. And I'll say it is a little weird the way they share the frequencies because as a man who's not staying up until 4 in the morning anymore, I don't hear KBRX that much, but... When I was driving the kids to school some years ago, not that many years ago, but I guess pre-pandemic, so four to five years ago, there was a girl, and I say girl because she's totally a college young woman, and her her show was called A Taste of Claire or A Touch of Claire or something. Her name was Claire. And uh, she was like 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. or 7 to 9 a.m. on KBRX once a week. And she had like really great taste and turned, you know, you could tell she was a little older than my kids. And I was always like, man, and I was like 40 something. So I was like, part of me wanted to write in and be like, Hey, yo, you're dope. This is a good show. And I was like, no, she's probably 19. She doesn't need my old ass sending her some <laughs> creepy message. But I was totally, I was always like, yo, this is amazing that in, I'm in Austin and still at seven in the morning, I'm discovering music from a kid to me, you know, a young person. And it's like, that's the best thing in the world. I think radio, I still, sometimes if I have room in the suitcase, I'll take my little bedroom radio with me and kind of tune in frequencies in different places and try to hear what's, you know, playing in other places. And it's, uh, and I'll say this when I was a kid, I think I was like eight when we got cable TV. And I said to my mother, like, man, I wish we could have cable radio because I want to hear what's going on in all these different places. And I grew up on college radio, listening to, to local college radio, and the uh, and I grew up right by Lake Erie. So Lake Erie is just this vast expanse of, of water, and all those Canadian stations were way cooler. you know. Like, so I got to hear, like even from as far away as Toronto, a big-ass city, like just different sounds. And radio has always been real special to me. And I loved um, – I mean, we're fortunate here. I mean, there's you go to most cities – there's places like I love K K E X P in Seattle. That's a great station. There's places like that have things, but Austin has K Z I, K B R X, Co op, uh, K U T X, still independent. You know, it's independent and cool. You know, and yeah. and, and they they've diversified a lot on that station. Uh, what am I missing? Radio wise. I mean, I think those those are those are definitely oh maybe you know Sun Radio. I think Sun Radio. Yeah. yeah, Sun yeah. Radio is independent. I mean, like you can't ask for much more than that many stations on the dial. Like I, you can't, most cities, there is no reason whatsoever to go any further to the right than 91.7. Yeah. Like you can, you tune in that little 88.7 to 92 to try to find like something. Yeah. And you, you mentioned know. K, you know, KZI, which was, you know, it was here that, that early yeah. on, uh, you know, they, they, um, I, I remember, uh, very early on in, K, KTSB's existence, uh, even, you know, I think this, this would have been like way before K, KTSB was even on, even on cable. They, they would let the, the people, the DJs to be at KTSB come over to uh, KZI and do a show. So they were always very supportive mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of the efforts to get uh, KTSB on the air. And then 
I, I think KTSB's original board, uh, original broadcast console actually came from like the storage room at KLBJ. Oh, wow. Uh, it was like their old AM board. Um, and uh, and then the, <laughs> the carpet on the wall in the uh, original um, DJ booth came out of the, from the demolition of the Villa Capri Motel. Wow. Uh, off of I-35. So they kind of scra- scrounged about sure. um, to find what they what they needed, which is kind of kind of funny. You know, you think, oh, it's UT. There's lots of money. But no, they're really, uh, you know, they, they, they got a little fraction of money from student services fees, but uh, but a lot of that stuff had to come from uh, other other avenues. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was it, it was a shoestring, but, um, but yeah, we're... we're you know, we're real lucky, I think, to be able sure. to, to tune into some of this stuff. And, um, you know, when you talk about KVRX, I was just thinking back to several years ago, the, the Austin Chronicle used to had, do a, a music trivia contest. And mm-hmm. uh, and I guess I'd quote unquote retired from the Chronicle by then. So this would have been like 2019, I think. But uh, but I, I went ahead and threw my hat back in the ring to be a part of the Chronicles team for the uh, for the trivia contest. Uh, just just to kind of cover the cover the generations with mm-hmm. some of the younger people who would know about stuff I wouldn't know about, but um, you know that and, and we always had a competitive team. Uh, we won a few times, but th- this this last time they did it, uh, I think the team that came in first was uh, was, was the KUTX team, um, which but I think they couldn't they couldn't win because they'd sponsored it. Huh. I think was the deal, but but so K, but KVRX came in second. So uh, that was that was really impressive. You know, the, these are de- definitely like younger people, but they were mm-hmm. able to cover uh, enough of the stuff that you know they might not have. You know, they they wouldn't have necessarily had the oppor- the generational opportunity to know about, but they still knew about it. And sure, I, I think about maybe that. You know, you know, we talk about again talking about what's what's good now versus uh, maybe what what we would have liked to have carried forward. But one you know. One one thing I enjoy hearing when I hear new when I hear younger people take stuff on is that um, you know because of the internet the way you experience music is just so much more uh, uh, broad based I think yeah. if if you want to anyway so you can find it you know so so the way that you know maybe people are combining influences now or it's taking a different a different path than I think would have been um, you know easy easy to take. Uh, back back when we were doing it, you you were, you know, the the level of specialty was such that you know if you're really into one thing, you know your your pocketbook or what have you, uh, oh yeah, as well as your brain might might only you know that that was your area of specialty and you may not have strayed as much, but now it's just there's much more opportunity for cross pollinization maybe just because people can I mean get it that many different last things. time I was at KBRX it's within the last ten years it wasn't probably in the last five years, but my guy, Chris Sakaguchi had a show up there and he, he invited me up and this dude was playing songs on the radio from YouTube. <laughs> yeah. The computer was the, his computer was playing. He was playing the songs on YouTube on the computer through the radio that people would be hearing in their cars or whatever. Like I thought that was the craziest thing and thinking like, man, if I had access to all that stuff back then, what would it, what would it have been like? I can't even imagine who I would be or what it would be like if I had every song in the world in my pocket. It, it's it's interesting because um, you know we've done a couple of, of radio shows to do to, you know to help promote the book, 
and uh, in some cases, people will want to, you know, want us to bring along a playlist of music from uh, from from the era, uh, and a lot of that stuff is available on, uh, you know, on on Spotify or on Apple Music or on YouTube, but but a lot of it isn't, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, but 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 I think the interesting thing about going to a radio station now is that when when I first started getting involved in radio, you'd expect to see. A, a large physical music library yep. and that that's no longer front that and center. That you can steal from. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was, that was a problem. I remember back that in, was a problem. Yeah, that was back in, back in the day of, of, uh, of KTSB there, there was always like, you know, if you, if you were caught stealing a record, it's like, yeah, you'd be tarred and feathered. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, it, you know, that was like taking, you're not just taking from the station, you're taking from everybody who oh, potentially yeah. uh, get a chance to hear it. But, yeah. uh, but yeah, and and now it's you're right. It's all it's it's literally all being pulled off of uh, of the of the services, which is uh, which yeah, it's just it's it's just bizarre. The notion that all this stuff yeah resides uh, in in your pocket, and as someone who grew up with uh, you know the, having the physical product, mm-hmm. it's still difficult for me to kind of tear away from that, even as you know. Uh, space considerations or what have you. The fact that, you know, I, I live with someone who may not want every inch of their domicile covered with music, Yeah, <laughs> you know, especially <laughs> since there's now an alternative, uh, you know, but, it, but yeah, it, it's, you know, it, I, I think there are some good things about it, some not so good things about it. Um, yeah. I'm married to a woman who shares my love for hoarding records and books. And it's, uh, it is, that's part of the reason we're going to have to move. Yeah. Well, my, my wife, uh, you know, not as much on the record side, but definitely on the book side. Yeah. And then my, my grandfather actually, uh, my maternal grandfather actually ran, uh, a, a book, a bookstore in Houston, uh, for many years, uh, down in downtown Houston and then later moved the store to, uh, Victoria. Uh, and so that's, yeah, the, the whole, uh, book and record collecting thing is, is kind of in, in my blood. I still actually have some of the books that were from his collection and, and my collection now. So see, I love that. I have, man, my, in during the pandemic, when I went to my mother's, I, uh, assembled a stereo from all my, like, I call all her best friends are like my aunts, you know, and they all, one had a receiver, one had an old turntable, one had a cassette that, you know, cause I had some records up there still, her records were still in the house. And that became all those women basically gave me all their records and like, you know, pretty much any classic rock and funk and disco, not, not deep disco like that, but Donna Summer and things like that, you know, like all those records, man. And I was like, it was amazing being up there and having all that in my old high school room, to be honest with you, it was kind of crazy, uh, really weird feeling, but the, uh, I couldn't bring all of them back. Like it just was not like, you know, when we brought, packed up her house and did all this stuff. It was like, no, these, we're going to have to sell some of these or give these away. Cause it's just records are hard to move, but I'm still like kind of obsessive about it. And the thing that sucks for us again, let's, we can be old men complaining about this very legitimately. I made a, I kind of told myself at one point, I'm only going to buy like my friend's records, right? Like I'm not going to just keep buying records. If I can listen to something on Spotify, fine. And I'll, but if my friend's putting something out, I want to support, I'll get their record. But now all our friends are putting out records and they're like 35 bucks. Yep. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So many people started putting out records and I'm like, Ooh, what's the shipping on that one? <laughs> yeah. Well, be, you know, be, you know, 
I mean, one thing that hasn't changed for me anyway is that you know at the start of the '90s I was in a, a you know very small time band and yeah I'm, we were going to get into that too yeah and I'm still in a small time band yeah. but but the difference now is that um, you know back then it was like you know you wanted to get enough together to put out a like a seven inch record I think that was that that was really the, yep. the key format at that point um, is is the '90s moved along and the economies of scale evened out a bit, then it became more possible to actually put out a full length CD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but now it's kind of like, I'm looking at the options and it's kind of like, well, I don't think I can, I don't think I can sell enough vinyl mm-hmm. to really justify that sort of, uh, that, that, that sort of outlay. Um, so let's look at t-shirts, you know, because yep. more people will wear it. <laughs> oh, exactly. they, they can, they can stream the music or they can, you know, ideally maybe they, they, they get it on, they download it on Bandcamp or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but, but if they really want to show their support when they come to the show, uh, it, it's much more likely to, to actually sell them a, a shirt, which is to me is ironic just because I, I remember growing up, it was like fashion was like the furthest thing from my mind. It was just like, I didn't really consider myself, uh, you know, being influenced by any, uh, by any of that. I just, I, I just didn't even think about it. And now I'm like, well, you know, I want to, you know, if I'm going to have a, a t-shirt, I want it to be a cool t-shirt. I want it to have a cool design and all that stuff. And it's not my, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's not necessarily my bailiwick to do those sort of things, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, so merch is, uh, you know, is, is huge. Yeah. Uh, even, even at the, you know, like I'm only going to get 25 people to come see my show. Sure. No, yeah. I bought, I got a water damage t-shirt last week. You know <laughs> yeah. I mean? It is what it, I love it. Yeah. You know? And, uh, well, you mentioned your bands. Did you have a band in Houston before coming to Austin? Was that, I, I had a very short term or I, I should say I was in a, I was in a short lived band. Uh, the first, the first show I ever played actually, uh, was, was at the apocalypse monster club. Dang. We were, uh, I, I was, I was very involved. Uh, this is again, like 1986, 1987. I was, I was involved in the, uh, the high school, uh, anti-nuclear war, yeah. uh, movement because that was kind of the height of Reagan and Gorbachev. And I think a lot of us, uh, frankly, didn't think we'd be sitting here in 2023. Still uh, tripping off the Russians. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I think, I think, you know, we, we, uh, you know, so we got, got involved in some of the, uh, d- different, uh, political type groups. Uh, but, but one of the things that we, uh, we did was we, we had a, uh, what we called a nuclear awareness benefit and the apocalypse monster club was, was kind enough to host us there. So, uh, the, the, band I was in at the time, which was a very short lived band called the Ingo pods. We played our, our first, uh, our first show there. And I was like all of 18 years old. And it was, uh, the first time I ever played in front of an audience, but, um, but yeah, Killian Sweeney from Deshmog, I guess was one of the guys oh, wow. who was in that band. And he's, he's still up in Chicago doing cool, cool stuff up there. Uh, very cool. you know, yeah. So, so that was a, that was a, that was a fun time. So that was the first time I ever played any gig at all. And then I think actually the first time I ever played in Austin was, uh, in a band called Jesus. I remember. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and our first gig, our, our first, uh, non backyard to someone's house gig was actually at the back room, oh, uh, which man. was sort of the, the, the strip mall, hard rock club. Yeah. Uh, when the Ramones would come to town, that was where they would play. Um, you know, and, and by the, by, by the nineties, I think they'd started integrating, 
uh, what would come to be known as alternative uh, yep. into their mix of music. So you, oh, the back room has history, history. Oh, super history. And there's a there's actually a, a really uh, there, there's a, a good new documentary uh, that just came out about uh, about the back room. Um, and I'm totally blanking on the name. I should look what? it up real quick. I should yeah. pay more attention. You just told me about two documentaries that I would love to see. Yeah, and I'll 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 look it up while we keep talking. But it's it's a uh, yeah, it's a documentary about the whole history of the back room, and that was it was a you know the fact that they were willing to take a chance on a band that you know I mean it was probably like on a Tuesday night on a you know bottom of the bottom of a four band bill, mm-hmm. uh, but they would give you these uh, these tickets. Uh, you know, each band got a different color coded ticket and for every ticket you brought through the door, you, you got a dollar. And so, um, you know, Man. you could, you could actually do all right if you got a few people through, uh, through the door, but you had to be careful if you, if you decided to use the, uh, the smoke machine, I think that was like 20 bucks. No, so, wow. that <laughs> but, is fun. But the docket, it's, it, I, I just looked it up. It's called bloody and bruised and it just, it just came out. Uh, and, and, uh, Yeah. If How can I see know, it? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. It's, the group that put it out is called Penny Rock Productions. Okay. Um, and uh, Dave, Dave Pruitt again figures large in this story. So he was one of the people who was, uh, who was interviewed. But, um, you know, we we talk very. I, I think the back room is kind of on the periphery of what it was. We were really focused on sure. with, with our book and with our documentary. But I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing this because the back room had a had a history that went you know, pretty far back, mm-hmm. uh, you know, well, well before, uh, you know, I, I ever got here. And, it, and of course it was the very first place where I was ever old enough to go see a Ramones show. Yeah. So the first time I ever saw the Ramones, uh, was at the, was at the back room. And so to, to see the Ramones on that stage and then have that stage be the first time I ever played in Austin. What? Uh, that yeah. is, man, that place though, not I mean for the music and, and the metal and the stuff that they did there. But there was the other side of the back room, which was the game room. The game room was huge, which yeah. was fun. And that place used to have nickel beer night. You could get yes, it, it was, was a, and it'd go up a nickel every half hour. Yeah, if you got there at five or six, it was like, or probably five, it was a nickel, and it's five thirty, it was a dime, fifteen cents. <laughs> it was ridiculous, and that was a whole scene, man. Like South Austin, and today too, South Austin's still not necessarily Riverside so much, but I mean, back in the you know South Austin's still kind of holding. In a way, a lot of the cool places are happening in South Austin. That's true. You know, Riverside, not so much. But uh, back then, going down to Riverside was like you're going halfway back to Houston. It did. It, it really, <laughs> like, where are we going? Yeah, <laughs> it it had, and it also just kind of looked like Houston. Yeah, it sort of. It you know you could if you were driving down Riverside, you got the feeling that you might be driving on like Westheimer, uh, at least like Westheimer going west of the Galleria. Yeah. Uh, that, that whole area, because it was just very, you know, a lot, a lot of strip malls, a lot of, uh, uh, big parking lots, big parking lots, yeah. good Mexican food. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot of uh, that. Vietnamese food, but, uh, you know, back, back in those days, but that back room was, uh, and then later in life when I worked for South by Southwest, you know, in Oh, four, five, six, six, a lot of these venues were not trying to have rap, you know, I, it was a struggle and a, and a fight a lot of the times to get like these bigger rap showcases. And especially during South by Southwest when they didn't see that as their bread and butter, they were like, no, bring us the next Nirvana. I need your, you know, your, your Rolling Stone show here tonight, you know, or whatever, or spin or whoever. We're not, we're not opening for you, you know, that, but the back room was like, bring it all here. 
like yeah. for a couple of years there. James Dean was booking it at one point. And they were also doing like all the like screwed up click in Houston and like just Texas rap on like Sunday nights there for a while. And it was just, I've seen it go through so many different phases and, and stuff. It was just so cool. And when hip hop Mecca was booking South by they had like a huge hip hop show that like Chuck D hosted. Wow. Atmosphere was on it before I even know, knew who atmosphere was at the time. Like there was a whole hellified lineup on that, on that stage. So from hip hop to extreme metal, to cheesy metal, to alternative rock, to punk, to like that room, man, if those walls could talk, it, it was, a. Uh, there's so much went on down there. It re- it really did, and I mean, and I guess now the footprint is still a club. It's yeah. it's the uh, you know w- the the Live Nation version of Emos, yes. which is you know not quite the same. No, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. No, but, I mean, come on, please. We're of a certain age, man. Tell me, we're not the luckiest generation in the world. Well, I would have liked to have been maybe. I'm at this point no, but sometimes say ten years older and seen some of these bands we I didn't get to see in their prime, but. Who had a venue where it was always $5 for under 21 and free for over 21 to go see the best bands of the entire generation? Yeah. No, that if, was... if Nirvana played there before they were, you know, Bleach Air or something, you'd have been seeing them for free or $5 if you're under 21, man, like in Houston and Austin. Yeah. That was, that was wild. Yeah. And shout and... out to Eric. De- yeah. Definitely shout out to Eric. And I mean, that, that, you know, there, there really was nothing. Uh, at all like that anywhere in, in any any place i mean it it um uh, you know the, 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 the fact- fans were obviously being paid because they all came there multiple times well i think all it was the yeah the, the the bar did okay mm-hmm. i mean and 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 it wasn't like they were charging ridiculous prices for drinks either i mean it just you know there were just so many at the time there were so many people uh coming there and uh, you know that the, the bands would do fine just off the bar and and the club would do fine off of yep. off of that too and then you know for the for the you know younger people you'd pay a little bit of a little bit extra and that that was that but Oh yeah, I mean we you know Killdozer for free, no means no oh for free. God, Jesus yeah. Lizard, uh, multiple times. Yeah, I mean and 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 I think the reason the bands came back is just uh, you know they they were cool and they they ran a, they ran a sharp operation mm-hmm. and and I think the I mean that was kind of the difference between the Cavity and, and Emos. I mean the Cavity had they had more of a I mean you can't really call it they had a a business model per se. Right. Uh, but, but the cavity, I, def- I think definitely those guys realized that something was going on and that they needed to provide a venue uh, to, to uh, showcase it. But, but it was never, you know, you know, it was never going to necessarily be long for this world because that just wasn't, no. that, that wasn't their uh, area of focus. Uh, but, but with the emos, I mean, I think they did have it more lined up in that regard. Mm-hmm. And, and uh you know, one of the things I think about a lot with emos is, uh, you know, how many people graduated from emos and, and went on to do uh, other other things, music oriented or otherwise, but just you know, to, who became successful in business. I mean, uh, J- Graham, you know, Graham Graham Williams, Graham Williams is is uh, you know key key example. But then you know you had Jason Ward, yeah, who you know went up to Chicago and started Chicago Mastering Service with Bob Weston. Uh, you know, here in town, we have no Polk East Side Pies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so there's, there's a, you know, there's a legacy behind that. And I think they, the guys at the Little Darling. Yeah. I mean, that's a, one of the coolest spots in Austin right now, in yeah. my opinion, you know, doing cool things and great food. 
So they, they, they did the cool stuff, but they also, uh, you know, they, they, they ran a good operation and they treated the bands, even, you know, the, the bands that were, you know, local bands, uh, who were, you know, lucky enough to be opening for a band like no means no, or something like that. They, they treated you well. They, 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 you know, they, they just, they, they, uh, they took, they took care of you. And so did, did the Austin emos have a college night? I don't know. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Houston on a Wednesday. I don't know that they really ever did because it's kind of like in Austin every night was yeah. college night. Right. Yeah. Well, no, but this is douchey college night. Oh, no. I Houston think... Houston on Wednesdays, they didn't have shows. Okay. If I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Wednesdays and they didn't have shows on Wednesdays and it was always just like cheap drink, college night, and a 100% different crowd. Wow. No, I don't think they, I mean, I mean, they did, like when they first got started, I don't think they had shows every night of the week, mm-hmm. but to the extent that there was a, a, a venue, um, you know, people would go there and that, you know, people would go there just to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, it was free. Yeah, it was free. And so you, you, um, you know, if you were a band that could be kind of a double edged sword because, you know, it's like if you, if you know, you weren't really capturing people's attention everybody would just go out to the patio and drink and, and socialize. But I, I think what happened with emos, when I talked to Eric about it, I mean, you know, there, there are two factors I think that kind of led to the, you know, things shifting, which, you know, number one was the fact that a lot of these bands uh, suddenly became really popular and their, their guarantees went up and uh, you had stubs open. They were willing to pay a little bit more. Um, And at the same time, uh, businesses like Lovejoy's and Casino El Camino came along that Mm -hmm. were, that were going to attract, you know, that could take care of just the, Oh, I want to go out and have a drink crowd. Um, Mm, So, So yeah, so their business model had to change uh, over the course of the '90s. But I think during the you know, the early part of the '90s, um, you know, if you were you were a local band uh, and and you had a gig at Emos and it got recommended in the Chronicle, or even if it didn't, I mean, even if you were just you know playing on a on a, on a you know weekday night or even a you know a weekend night, I mean, you could always count on a crowd because there mm-hmm. just be, people would be there. It was the place to be. That was the place to be, hands yeah. down. I actually did see Jesus Lizard at Stubbs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is weird to think. And then I did go see them at ACL Live a few years, <laughs> which they can still hold down. They can hold down any size crowd, which is crazy. But that I, I didn't get to that ACL Live show, but I saw pictures of it. And when I think about, uh, you know, David Yao uh, still, you know, getting out there like he's getting out there. Did you go to the Flipper show with David Yao at Kickbutt? No, I didn't. Tamara was there, actually. And uh, <clears throat> put it this way. Monday night, we left at one twenty. They were still playing. Wow! This dude was still David Yao going off, and I'm like, and they they had five or six opening bands. It was just ridiculous. It should have been way earlier, but <clears throat> excuse me, he's still a monster. Yeah, still he amazing. is. He is. Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't know quite how he how he does it to that degree. Uh, didn't didn't know it thirty years ago, you know. Still don't know it, but but it's like, yeah, he's one of the great frontmen. Uh, of, yeah. of yeah. When I first moved to Houston officially in '89, I had never been to the Pick and Pack, and Jesus Lizard played the Pick and Pack, and I couldn't find it because in the ad in the public news it just said uh, Wah and Welch. That's all it said, like Wah at Welch, and I was like. Well, I think I found Wah. I think I, I couldn't find it. 
and I was so mad I, I didn't see the show and I didn't have friends even really to reference it, you know? And then, then, the, so I went to sound exchange and talked to them like, <clears throat> like, where is this place? Cause the next week it was Das Domin and the God bullies. Ah. And I did go to that, but, uh, that was, a that, that was, that was our, our struggles back then. Jesus lizard man saw him at the Washington Avenue show bar, you know, and I probably came yeah. here the next day to the cavity or something like that, or, you know, yeah, I think even if you'd driven right past the pick and pack, you might have missed yeah. it. I mean, it was it was that. I mean, yeah, it was it was a very it was probably not a hundred capacity. Yeah, yeah, just a little ice house. Basically, yeah, and but everybody I, played there. And I, yeah, ice houses were definitely a kind of a thing. Yeah, a Houston thing. Very much. Uh, yeah, with the you know the garage doors and everything. I mean, it was it was a old old style Houston thing. When I was a real little kid. You'd go to those places, and it would just be like a bunch of old men drinking beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I guess it's time, yeah. The pick and pack evolved into something else, and that was kind of the. I, I think you know here in Austin, I mean, we you know we we found a uh, you know down market gay cross dressing bar, right. and that was that was our place. And before that, you had uh, uh, you know back in the late eighties, you had uh, uh, Dong Huang, yeah, which was yeah. a Vietnamese restaurant, there. yeah, yeah, and. I've heard uh, about that. Yeah, so you just, I mean, that, that's the, you know, you find, if, if there's not a club that's catering to you, you just, you try to make one wherever you can find one. Yeah, for sure. That's, yeah. That was the deal. My first shows in, that I booked in Erie, Pennsylvania were at a Italian dudes club. Like, they play, they have bocce courts in there and stuff. It was like where the, the Italian guys went and had their beers. And, and they also, it was run by old school music, local musicians, and they just let us start doing punk shows. Very cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. Very cool, man. But you have been not only, you've been covering music and playing music this whole time. From More or less, the yeah. late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I, you know, I, I from. Because you I were think, in the Chronicle in the early 90s. Like, you were, you've been in there for a minute. I think I started writing for the Chronicle in 1992. Yeah. And then, uh, and, and then I, I stopped writing for them in. 2019, I think. So it was wow. a, it was a, it was a uh, good, good long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, I, I, I got to tip my hat to, uh, to, to both, uh, well, really Rob, uh, Rob Patterson was the editor who kind of first let me in there. And then, uh, uh, Raul Hernandez became the next music editor. And he mm-hmm. really, he, he kind of told me, it's like, we're going to, we're going to get you in, we're going to get you in here more. And, and he did. And so it was, you know, the nineties was a good, was a good time to be in alt, alt news weekly. Oh yeah. Uh, because the, cause the, you know, the, the internet wasn't really happening yet. So you didn't have Craigslist. So you're still making a lot of money off of the personals. Mm-hmm. Um, you can still have cigarette ads. Uh, so a lot of times you'd have these blow in cigarette ad slicks with Joe Campbell's picture on it and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, and, and, and then the club listings. I mean, if you look at the, at the Chronicle now, uh, they still have the club listings, but they're very few, uh, they're very few print ads. There that, is. I've yeah, noticed that. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, why, why would you pay for a print ad? And for a, old people like me, how about yeah. that? Think about me. <laughs> yeah. There are a few of them that have hung on. I, I think like, like Sahara lounge, I think still has one. Yeah. I mean, so, so hats off to all the ones who actually yeah, still they definitely are. Yeah, uh, I, 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 you know, I think there's, there's definitely uh, still people who do uh, get their. I mean, I still pick up a print copy of it every week, and I, every week. Yeah, 
And I pick up pretty much every paper I can find anywhere I go. <laughs> yeah. It's, if it's sitting by the door. But it was, but I mean, in, in the nineties, it would be like, yeah, thir- Thursday, you knew the Chronicle was coming out. You knew Thursday afternoon, uh, to, to go look for it. And you would, you know, you'd sit down with it and go, go through, it. through it. And, you know, uh, I'd take the yellow highlighter yeah, and mark the shows I was interested in because there were so many. Yeah. It's like, you, yeah, there, there was, there was, uh, just, just a lot. And because there was a lot of ad revenue, there was also a lot of column inches for music writing and they, and they, yeah, they pretty much let me write about, I mean, occasionally they'd be, they'd give me assignments, but at the same time, if I went in there and said, Hey, I want to write about, uh, these three or four disparate groups under the theme that they're all doing, uh, what I consider to be basement music, mm-hmm. you know, just music that's, that's out of the, you know, that's non, that's non-normative and eclectic. And yet they're somehow putting it together. I mean, like a very esoteric pitch that, uh, you know, probably I didn't totally understand what I was trying to set out to do at the time. Uh, you know, where I would say, yeah, sure. Here, you know, here's 2000 words. You yeah. Know, go for it. And, um, and, and so, yeah, it was, it was just a very, uh, you know, different freewheeling time. And it was just fortunate that, you know, I, I happened to be there at that time and could kind of, kind of do some of this, uh, writing about stuff that I would, uh, that I otherwise wouldn't have probably been able to get anybody to certainly not get, get anybody to pay me to write about. Um, sure. But then you talk to those guys and you learn about, you know, whatever, you know, got, got them to where they are. And you, uh, you, you learn about more, uh, more stuff and not just music. I mean, in some cases they, they'd be referencing books and movies and things like that, that you would, uh, you would want to listen to. And so it was, yeah, it was a good, it was a good time. And then I, you know, in terms of, you know, occasionally I get to interview, you know, interview someone famous like, you know, Brian Wilson or, yeah. Tom Peterson, the bass player for Cheap Trick or something like that. And so th- that was always fun, too. Oh, man, that's yeah. so, that's fun. And you had a real good run with them. The uh, What was your next bands? What were some of your other bands in the 90s? Uh, well, from Cheezus, uh, and Cheezus was the band I started with Jonathan Tobin, yeah. who, you know, went to high. Uh, Jonathan and Tamara and I all went to Bel Air High back in the day, and Jonathan has since gone on to... Uh, have quite a quite a career as a as a DJ in New York doing mm-hmm. the, the soul clap dances and the New York night train productions and everything, uh, but um, and so he always kind of had a head for that kind of promotion. I mean, he was he was a good guy to have uh, in a band because he he um, he already knew how to do a lot of that stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, and and then he was also just his his guitar playing. Um, you know, I think the he kind of. I think uh, patterned himself after uh, after guys like uh, uh, Glenn Taylor from the Dicks and uh, you know Gary Chester from Ed Hall, who was definitely uh, doing a lot of stuff. Um, so th- those were who he was. You know, I think, and and then uh, you know I think uh, Dwayne from uh, Jesus Lizard. You know th- those those were the people he was listening to, and and uh, you know and so so his guitar was just kind of all over the place. And uh, Jesus, I think we, we kind of started is, is thinking, okay, we're just going to try to get out and, you know, kind of try to play with people, kind of shock offend them. We, our, our, our big trademark was like we'd throw cheese products at the audience. And I remember like two or three shows into that, people started throwing the cheese back, and I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't know if that was like a good thing or a bad thing. But um, I think looking back, it was probably mostly a good thing. Yeah. Uh, but, Fun. but after, after that band kind of petered out, we, we started a band called Noodle. Um, I remember Noodle. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and noodles, I, I think we were trying to be a little bit more, uh, maybe a little bit more serious musically. Although our, you know, our songs were still totally irreverent, and I, you know, we, we but you know, and we were always still trying to put on a show too. But we, we got very lucky. Again, this is all Jonathan. I mean, he always managed to get, uh, get, get great people to come play with us. And uh, so I, I think our first drummer. Uh, in Noodle was Rich Malley from the band Happy Family. Uh, he played in the in the 80s. He played with Scratch Acid for a spell when Ray Washam was off uh, touring with the big boys. Um, and then he wound up playing with the Horsies. That was probably the big band Man. he was in during the, during the 90s. But the, And then after <coughs> Rich left, uh, we got Tony Nazero, who was brand new to town at the time. It didn't know any better, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but but Tony, uh, Tony later ended up playing in drums and tuba um and you know did a lot of touring around with uh with, with uh, drums and tuba and these days he's actually a, a pretty you know he's do, doing some great visual artwork uh, he shows in a lot of galleries in new orleans and stuff um and then our last drummer was uh, uh lance farley who um now is the drummer both for the hickoids and the pocket fishermen who continue to play today so we always had uh, you know, good good people in the band, and um, yeah. our bass player, our first bass player, was uh, Mark Fagan, who'd played. I know Mark. Mark Bayou Pigs, Bayou Pigs, and uh, you know now he does a band called the John Pauls, who are mm-hmm. going to be playing. Uh, we're doing a, a a release show for the book in a couple of weeks on October twenty eighth. So his band, the John Pauls, is going to be one of the bands that's playing there. Um, but we always, yeah, we always had good good people playing for us. But we were, uh, you know, I th- we were fortunate enough to come along at a time when. Uh, uh, at Sound Exchange, there was this groundswell of, of uh, Sound Exchange employees who wanted to start record labels, mm-hmm. and so if you were in a band at that time, you could find yourself, you know, you know, five or ten gigs into your existence, having someone come up and say, "Hey, I want to put out a seven inch," and uh, so that was, you know, so we actually did put out some, uh, you know, recorded stuff, and so we we were around for maybe I don't know two three years, did a little bit of touring around the around the country. Um, but you know, it never really amounted to much. Uh, you know, we were, none of the bands I was in were ever like the band. Um, but I was always, you know, just, I I always tried to keep a foot in it. And I was fortunate that the Chronicle, uh, was cool about that. They were never like, well, you can't write because you're, you know, you're writing about the same scene that you're participating in. Um, I mean, it was a scene, though. It is what it is. Yeah, You're a part of it. And that's—I I don't think you could. Yeah, you can't really divorce those two things. I mean, and and I think even, you know, when the, when we started writing the book, it was kind of like, okay, well, you know, I mean, we're yes, we're we're, we're trying to get it right and capture as much of this as we can, so people get a feel for it. But at the same time, I mean, we were there, and we can't help but let our perceptions of what that was like uh, uh, color it to some degree. But um, I'd much rather read a book from people who were there. Yeah. Well, and then and then the you oral know, yeah. and the oral history is the only way I really want to read most music books. To be honest, even well, like the DJ Screw book, I'm so thankful that Lance put oh, in yeah. so much time. Because there's really be no point for even you know I know a lot about Houston rap. I know a lot of these people. There'd be no point for me to just write that. You know, like well, you got to get the voices like he did to, of the people who were really really there and really you know and and a lot of those are going to be discerning. Uh, stories that you're not <laughs> you're gonna have to figure out what's what really happened and you know get with you know get, you know a lot of everybody's memory is a little distorted it's true i mean it's a yeah it's like the witness at the scene of the crime it's like you know the the, 
the testimony is is mm-hmm. only as reliable as that person's memory that's going to be colored by their perception. But uh, yeah, that, I, I think you know the, I know at UT Press originally our editors was like uh, they, they were they were asking us, are we sure we want to do an oral history because you know an oral history at the outset might seem like it's a much easier project, but um, but there are certain uh, you know pitfalls that come along with writing one of those that that are unique to the form. But I, yeah, I think from the beginning it was kind of like, no, this has to be an oral history. We got to get the voices of uh, of the people who were there, just because the whole the whole point of what we're doing, or the point the whole point of what we're talking about is is DIY. So you, you can't really, if it's just me talking about DIY, that's not is mm-hmm. uh, that, that that just doesn't really capture it as much. And so, and and I think we found as as we talk to more people. Our our perce- our own perceptions of what was going on started to shift, and that was you know absolutely the case I think with uh, you know the, the women we talked to, uh, because their their what what they shared with us was you know something we we could not have necessarily perceived just by virtue of uh, of how we perceived it from being you know our our gender mm-hmm. at the time, but. Uh, again, I mean, the fact that, the, that we did have, uh, you know, so many, um, you know, so many women who are, who are integral to the, the, the fabric of the scene, you know, we had people like, uh, you know, Terry Lord, drummer for Sincola, who'd been on the scene for a long time, uh, you know, Rebecca Cannon, vocalist for Sincola, Chris Patterson, uh, guitarist, um, you know, the band Power Snatch, yeah. uh, all those guys, uh, you know, or girls, women, I should say. Uh, Gretchen Phillips, um, you know, Hey, I mean, she gets, she gets name checked in the, uh, uh, by, by Kathleen Hanna. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, um, so yeah, I mean, just ha- having, having these people around and so uh, c- central to the scene, I think, um, you know, it, get, it, it, it made it to where it wasn't going to become a, uh, a rigid sausage party type of very doctrinaire mm-hmm. rock scene. Like I think I, I keep coming back to, you know, this is a couple of weeks or a few weeks after, you know, Jan Winter puts out this book that's like, you know, the masters, we're going to hear from Bono and, you know, Pete Townsend and Mick Jagger and John Lennon, you know, and, and it's like, and and I don't have any beef against those guys. I mean, I kind of, but I kind of, and I grew up with that. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, you, Hey man, there's a lot of Jan Winters in Austin who preceded us. Yeah, and they are out there, and it's not just the names you might think. I mean, I, that's something I noticed in this city. Like, there's especially the people who are a little older than us. It was a it was a very boys clubby type thing. Yeah, there were lots of great women involved, and and it, all kinds of things. But at the top, you deal with some of those dudes. It was the weirdest thing because you're in the most liberal, cool place. Everybody's so cool, and then you get to know some of these dudes, and you're like. The yeah, what is this? it gets. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you, you know, know, occasionally I'll still hear something. And it's just like, really, that him too. Yeah, you know, that's that's just, it's such a such a shame. But I I think, you know, I, I think about what would have happened. Like, let's just say that you know I never get involved with this scene, and and I grow up where, and it's like my, you know, my my prism through which I'm seeing music is defined by, uh, the, this very rigid, uh, you know, the, you know. When, when rock and roll became rock. In other mm-hmm. words, when rock and roll became less black and less, uh, you know, and all about the, 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 the guitar hero, the white male guitar hero. And um, man, just how like, 
you know, not, not only how poisonous and toxic that would have been, but just how much you would have missed out. I mean, the notion mm -hmm. that this, you know, when, when Jan Winter says like, well, I, I don't feel like I can talk to Joni Mitchell of all people <laughs> about this because she's not articulate. <laughs> she's not as articulate as, as, as Bono or Pete Townsend or who, you know, or John Lennon. I mean, it's just like, Wow, dude! That was a I, really bad example. I, I, I feel, I feel, I feel kind of sorry for you. Not because you know it's like, yeah, you're, you're, you know, you're rich and everything, but I mean, you never, you, you'll never get to sit down and like really learn and mm -hmm. and absorb and empathize with with, with these these uh, these these women, you know, and and hear their story and 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 really see their art the way that. Um, the, the way that it is or the way that, that you should see it. And, and um, so anyway, so I think that that's been, I, I've, I've done, I've, I've tried to talk about this a lot and I've never, I've never quite been able to articulate it as well as I would have liked to, other than to just say um, that, that, yeah, it was, it, you know, it, it made me a better person all around just by virtue of the fact that they, that they were there. For sure. I mean, I was raised almost exclusively by women, you know, for the big, biggest part of my upbringing, you know, and it's like, I never really got that. Like, who are these guys that only hang out with the dudes and look down on <laughs> these women? I mean, and then when it comes to music, I've learned later in life that there were even like the big, the radio stations would have things like you can only play one female voice an hour or this. And it's like, what does that even mean? I mean, regardless of how you feel, you don't like Joni Mitchell, you yeah. don't like Chaka Khan, like they, she's not as good as uh, who you're, what? I mean, and Joni Mitchell's body of work is crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I don't even sit around and listen to Joni Mitchell all the time <laughs> by any means, but I mean, and she's wowed me many times, the depth, everything, like to, and to say things like it. I didn't, like I said earlier, I don't pay as much attention as I used to, so when I saw like some of the John Winter stuff popping up on social media, I didn't even know what people were talking about. And it maybe like 10th or 15th thing. I just saw, I'm like, what are these people talking about? And I went and actually read it and I was like, Oh my God, seriously. Yeah. It, not only is it wrong to say and to feel that way, but it's 2023, bro. Yeah. You don't, that you haven't learned that. Just, just shut up. Well, it's shut just, yeah. Up. That was the, it was bad enough. And he made it even way worse. Like it was like, dude, you really just put it out there like that? Yeah. Articulate. And this this was Bono. Uh, yeah. This this was our cultural gatekeeper for Oof. for many many. Uh, dude, no, I and, remember. Yeah. I, I have to say, I as a kid, I subscribed to Rolling Stone. I mean, and and everything. Oh, yeah. I I grabbed every magazine I could get as a kid. Hit Parader, you know, whatever. But I can remember when Rolling Stone put the Osbournes on the cover from the Ozzy Osbourne TV show. And I said to myself, it was that issue. I was like, yo, these dudes are trying to be maximum or something now. Like they've changed. This is, this is not the Rolling Stone I grew up with. Like the art, the, the Osbournes article was like a page and that was the cover story. And I was like, uh, I was young, not even knowing who Hunter S Thompson is, but I was reading this crazy political article that I only sort of grasped, but it was amazing and helped form some of my, you know, my outlooks on things from this magazine. I was reading about, you know, it was better, you know, I, Joni Mitchell for real, like in Rolling Stone as a youth or whoever. But, and it, and I, but I remember that one issue, I believe it was like 94 
I was like, man, because Maxim and those type of magazines were really taking coming the, up and taking the, the over. lad the lad rags. Yeah, yep. And they were so dumb, and so bad, and they were very uh, not even you know there were British magazines that were kind of like that you might find sometimes, and those were had a little deeper humor maybe, but then it became a point where everybody just became Maxim. Not every you know, but a lot of the mainstream just were like, okay, this is what we have to do to. And it's before that predates our attention spans getting zapped into oblivion by the internet. Yeah. Like we still were reading things back then more, you know, I was for sure. Well, I think, I think what they realized there, well, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of who goes on the cover, it's like, you know, you got to have enough eye candy to be able to get the newsstand, uh, you know? And so, you know, I think another, another big one that I know like got a lot of people upset was, uh, I think when Jenny McCarthy uh, wound up on the, on the cover of, Rolling Stone, you know, and, and I mean, Rolling Stone had already by yeah. then, I think it, but you know, it was, it was not really as, as much of a music magazine per se as it was a lifestyle magazine, but certainly I think when you listen, I, I remember I listened to an interview that, uh, Jan Winter did, uh, you know, before this whole fracas with, you know, saying that only, only white men are qualified to talk about rock and roll in his master's book. Uh, you know, he did an interview with, uh, uh, Mark Maron on the WTF podcast. And it, it, um, you know, the, the, there's something about the way that those, those guys from the, from the rock era, uh, carry themselves. If you haven't moved beyond that in 2023, um, and I think you hear it when you listen to what's left of like what we would have called album oriented rock back in the day, then, mm-hmm. you know, these stations where it's like, you know, rock ends in 19, like after Nirvana or after Soundgarden, that's, if that's even, all. or Nirvana destroyed it. Yeah. <laughs> Grunge right. ruined it. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's all they'll, they'll, they'll play like, like basically rock lasted from in, in, in their calculus from like 1968 to 1991. Mm-hmm. And it, it's only about, you know, 200 songs long basically. And, and I think about just, yeah, wow. I mean, it's like how, I don't even really know how those stations continue to, subsist i mean you know i guess people driving around in cars that don't have uh you know you, you don't don't can't plug in your phone or mm-hmm. you know i I've, I've had a theory about the you know because because again we get back to radio i mean it is at heart radio is just a very intimate medium so i think if you know uh a lot of people who are driving around alone a lot that's kind of like their friend yep. in some respects. And so that's what podcasts are. Lonely people listening to people talk. I yeah. Think, a lot of the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you and, know, but if you're, you know, but if you're driving like a company truck that only yep. has a, an AM radio, uh, you then know, you become a right winger. Well, the, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, because there's, you know, you know, I think yeah. I, I just, I was like, my car was in the shop recently and I had to reset my presets on, uh, on AM the other day. And I, I don't ever hardly listen to AM, but mm-hmm. you know, I figure, okay, if there's ever like a storm or something, I at least want to be able to get the, you know, get, 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 you know, one station yeah. on AM or something. But, uh, but yeah, you know, you have, uh, I, I think there was one, maybe one station that was playing music. Uh, uh it's eight, it's like eight ten from, from San Antonio. Kono. Well, there's a country station in San Antonio on AM. That's oh, I that's like classic it. country. Yeah, eight hundred something. Well, Kono is like the oldie station, and okay. it's it's somewhere in the eight hundreds, I think. But and you know, and it's a simulcast, I think, of their uh, FM broadcast. But yep. for some of those oldies, it's kind of nice just to hear it on the AM band again because oh, it yeah. reminds me of being a kid. 
I like that stuff. Yeah. I, I'm into that. I, I'm just, I feel that completely, man. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so far out of like my wheelhouse and understanding to an extent because like, I'm sorry. Yeah, we're 50 some year old white dudes, but my whole life I've worked to diversify and include people and things. KPFT did not have a hip hop show till Rat Richard came to me and we put together the plan with Nick Cooper. Oh man. And sat down and put together a thing where we were inviting a whole new community into that community station. When we did it in, in the 2000s again, we brought in like a whole new world of people. South by Southwest, it was like, look, man you know, why do these Houston guys not know about it? They need to come. We need to, you know, include this. I put women on my shows all the time. Always wanted, never, it wasn't even really a thought. And now it's like, it makes me notice things so much more on these stupid podcasts and on these things where I'm just like, who are you two bros? Like you still exist. Like why, what is this? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, where is this attitude from? And like, you know, you live in a world that's the punk scene, and it's fun, and you don't even sort of realize that we're just a little microcosm of it in the well, middle of so much other dumbass shit. And, you know, as punks, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the dude in charge was a jerk. Yeah. Well, I think what I've, and I think what I've realized is that, you know, as, as time goes on, it's just I'm going to, you know, every, in, anytime I think I I might kind of understand those sort of dynamics, mm-hmm. there's always something that's going to come along and school me. I mean, it's yeah. like, and I think all we can do is is listen and and hopefully learn and do better. You know, than just do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Open, I don't want to be in a one 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 color world. One, I don't want to be around a bunch of dudes. I want I want everybody to come to the party. That was always my goals too, especially with hip hop. Like, so many people liked it but we're afraid to go to that club back in the day. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like today where everybody just listens to hip hop. Everybody's some has some foot in that somewhere, you know? And I was always like, man, if I want to see ghetto boys or whoever I was going to go, I went to the club and stuff, but how can we expand that, that audience, you know, then, so like going next week with uh, Devin, the dude to Norway. And the first time I went to Norway, was with Devin and Bun B and Slim Thug. And there were, and Rapid Rick, the DJ from here in Austin. Oh, yeah. And uh, Rapid Rick came out on the turntables before Slim, and I was out there throwing out uh, his mix CDs to people. The kids were going nuts. And Slim was opening for Kanye. Kanye was right after him. This was 06, 07. And uh, he's playing Lil Kiki's Southside, which is a pretty deep cut. Yeah. And there were Norwegian kids like rapping along and like just so hype about it. And it's like, I loved it. That, those are the type of discoveries and things that I'd love to see. And then the rappers were like, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea that, like, first of all, white kids don't even come to our shows in Houston. Second of all, what is this sea of Norwegians rocking out to my music? You know, and it's like, I'd love to just see, turn people onto that whole thing, see that the world is not that simple. Yeah. And some of these simple ass people like Jan Winter who've had too much control in their lives create too much of the narrative that too many people see. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I've always like, there's actually some really great white rappers, but there's been a lot of questionable ones. But what has always offended me more 
was my father's generation would be you touching on this, but my father's generation of loving like Edgar Winter or, or Stevie Ray Vaughan and all that, and having no thought whatsoever of Lightning Hopkins or the greats who created this music completely. And like white blues and white jazz has always been like a thorn in my side as just a human being as a kid, like there's great players. I'd go to, if John Zorn played, I'd he's questionable too. I'd go see him. <laughs> I'm a fan. I like the music. You know, it's, uh, there's plenty of great – Tim Burns coming next week. Amazing. But, I mean, like, the people who, for some reason – and I feel like it's our parents' generation is where I noticed it more is if they're into that, that's what they're into. They don't know shit about the black artists. It makes it – I just – it's things that I can barely get my brain around, man. Like, what, what shouldn't we want to hear the whole breadth and scope of greatness? Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, I think if you're talking – you know, if you talk to, well, you can't talk to Stevie Ray, obviously, anymore, or, Ed, or Edgar, but, you know, it's like, I mean, we're, t- you know, those guys were, you know, the, 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 those guys were, that were, you know, getting it from right. the source. I mean, you know, and, and, um, no, I'm not, not just in the artist, yeah. I'm talking about the fans. Yeah, but the fans, and I think, you know, you know, I think if you look at the, the course of how, uh, you know, how music marketing evolved, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was in the, you know, I think there was probably, you know, you had freeform radio in the, in this uh, freeform FM radio in the sixties and, and you might well hear, uh, you know, lightning Hopkins next to, uh, you know, I don't know, faces or something like that, mm-hmm. a small faces or, or, you know, and, and then, you know, that might segue into like Ma Vishnu orchestra or something. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, it was very, very eclectic and those, those artists could, could exist side by side, but then you got the whole, Lee Abrams uh, sub-segmenting uh, that was really done at the behest of like, well, how can we bring this market to, you know, to and deliver it to the advertisers? You know, mm-hmm. how, do, how do we box this up? And um, yeah, and, and the result of that was that, you know, from one end of the 70s to another, uh, rock radio became very, very white with the exception of, you might, you know, you still hear Hendrix mm-hmm. and that would be, that, that would typically be about it. And, and then, um, you know, and, and then you kind of had the rock versus disco oh, yeah. uh, paradigm and you had the, you know, the whole disco sucks movement and, uh, you know, and certainly disco by then, had, you know, I mean, you know, you had Ethel Merman doing a disco yeah, album for, exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it, it all was gets a, co-opted. Yeah, it was, it was a, uh, you know, you, you could argue on one hand, it was a trend push too far, but on the other hand, I mean, you know, you, you can't, you can't disavow the, the, the racism and the homophobia no. that, that drove and a the lot sexism. of sexism. Yeah. Everything. And the sex. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, there were, there were women. I mean, I'm actually yeah. one of the, I remember interviewing, uh, uh, you know, Gloria Gaynor once Oof. upon a time and, uh, you know, t- and talking with her a little bit about that whole, uh, you know, she had the number one record and suddenly, uh, this whole thing just evaporates mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. And, and it, and it actually, you know, almost killed the music industry. Uh, you know, there were, there was a lot of, there was a long period of time between like 1980 and 1982 where, a lot of the top 40 hits were country records because that was like where the, you know, people were still buying records. So suddenly, uh, you know, the the country records are charting on the pop charts, but as a whole pop wasn't really happening. And then, but then you had thriller, you know, uh, another, another, you know, black guy comes along to kind of, you know, Mike Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, you know, comes along to kind of save the day. And they were very, I mean, if you listen to a lot of the history of that record, they were very much about like, 
we're, we're saving the music industry with this record. Well, not for nothing, but there were a few too many rock bands who tried to disco-fy themselves a bit, too, at that time. Made some pretty bad music. There were a few that didn't do a good job. <laughs> there were, you know, there were a few that did an okay job, and then yeah. there were a few that didn't didn't do so high. <clears throat> I mean, um, I, 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 you know, going going back to Chepo Pena, who kind of started this whole project, yeah. I, can't, I can't say anything bad about I Was Made for Loving You by Kiss, right. because I know Chepo holds that near and dear to his heart. <laughs> My first concert was them on that tour, the yeah. Dynasty tour, but... And I didn't realize it back then what it was till later. I'm listening to it later going like, damn, okay. And to be honest, to bring this maybe sort of full circle as an, as an adult, one of my craziest realizations as an adult was that Kiss wasn't that great. They were a great show. That's They're it. amazing. They yeah. made amazing business. I still would buy a Kiss doll or something. Probably It's funny, but when I go back to, to the, because you know, it was the albums, album time. They had the hit hits. Yeah. But what album are you going to really go back to? You know, like their hit records, their double platinum, or, you know, when you really go deep and listen to it, you're like, come on. <laughs> so. No, they, they, yeah. But, but they did, I mean, yeah, they, they did put on a show. Uh, that was my first concert. I was seven. Yeah. But of course, you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, Parliament put on a show. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I mean, the, I guess they were both on the same label. Uh, on Casablanca at the time, Man. but but it, you know if it, you I, I it was it was difficult if you were like a white kid uh, growing up to you know whereas you know I mean you, you think about this it's like if you're a white kid or in, and you're into Kiss you're probably going to be you know if you if you would have had the opportunity maybe to to, to see uh, what what uh, Parliament was doing you might have been into that too because it was you know mm-hmm. and obviously the musicianship. Uh, was was you know several levels beyond several to levels put it beyond. put it mildly but um but yeah I mean but but again we're at the late late seventies and it was just so segregated so yep um yeah yeah well now the world is at our fingertips it's all right here it's so easy to access this music and find out things and I love that you were able to come over here and we could sit down and talk because uh as much as I use the internet I still do really love books. I yeah, prefer well, having, a, you know, having that. I have shelves full of books. I have stacks to be read still. I, I think it's really cool, and it's. Uh, I'm really glad to see you've got your first like book, collective. You know, your work, Chepo, Richard. It's really exciting. It's coming out this next couple of weeks. It's coming out. Uh, it, it'll actually the street date is uh, Tuesday. This Tuesday, October seventeenth. Excellent. And we're going to be doing a uh, kind of a, a a literary release party at the uh, Austin library downtown on uh, Saturday, October 21st. And then we're going to do a proper rock show to kind of celebrate the release the following weekend on October 28th. And we got to have the uh, glory Glorium, one of the great bands there. They're getting back together to play Uh, the living pins, uh, Jesus Christ, Superfly, Gomez, our our wow. Austin Gomez, wow, uh, and uh, the John Pauls who we talked about with Mark Fagan a little bit earlier. Where's that show? Uh, it's gonna be at the Parlor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I booked a, I booked tickets for your talk at the library, and then didn't. Well, I mean, it couldn't. I didn't have a choice. I bought flights to well, this you gotta, tour. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm be in Scandinavia. You know, we'll, I'm excited for that. But then I was like, man, these are the type of things I want to go to. Like, 
I'm also missing USA Mexico and water damage at the parlor. Probably oh. the same weekend. I mean, I love that's the type of thing I like to go to. Yeah, when the parlor matinees are good, it's so fun. The parlor mat. I, I I've said this before, but I mean, yeah, the parlor. I think that a lot of what they're doing really kind of captures the the spirit of what we're trying to do in the in the '90s. And some of the some of the players are definitely you know some of the people who've hung on and kept doing it. But then there's also a lot of great new new bands playing there too so the pizza's great the pizza's great the, the vibes are great yeah it's just a, it's know, a good man. it's a it's a good scene overall so uh, yeah, i'm not going to complain about traveling but i am like these are those are a couple of things i would love to see and be a part of yeah but i, I appreciate you you know kind of you know ha- having me on and you know getting a chance to catch up with you after sure. uh, many many years to put it mildly well I'm, yeah i know i wanted to do this but also and I, I, we didn't your show that y'all did on KV, KUTX last week was fantastic. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, we, we listened got... to that, and I was really anticipating. I knew it was going to be cool, but it was really, really great to hear. And that's another thing, uh, a tip for people like who have analog receivers. Um, Saturday night on KUTX sounds really good on, a, on any stereo, on any, any radio. But on, when you have the old school receiver and he's playing, like I think he's mostly playing vinyl from what it's, you know, it seems like, and it just sounds like just amazing. Rick, Rick K-10, McNulty. Rick McNulty. Yeah. yeah. Rick, Rick's done a great job of uh, taking, it. taking the mantle from, uh, Paul Ray, rest in peace, who, yes. you know, did twine time for many years. For years. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough gig being a radio listener in Austin on Saturdays because, you know, you have Scott Gardner over on co-op doing stronger than dirt. And then True. you got Rick doing, uh, doing his show on uh, KUTX. But uh, I mean, it's, you know, Again, I, I, I like to, you know, they're the things I don't like about what Austin's become, but I, I always want to balance those with the things I do like. Oh, and yeah. I mean, you know, that, that part of uh, our, our, our once big town that's now a small, smallish city, although really, I don't know, a million people, that's not very small. Big enough. Yeah. I mean, there are, but there are some, I, you know, the, the, you gotta you gotta keep looking at the good stuff, and there's definitely good stuff happening oh, on, 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 the, on the radio and then, you know, places like the parlor and, uh, you know, and there's a whole lot of good stuff that we just, you know, we just don't know about cause we're, we're too damn old. Oh man. I told <laughs> I'd say it. I fully admit, I don't pay attention like I used to. And there's all the time people are like, so-and-so I saw this and that. And I'm like, what here? Damn. At yeah. the parlor. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's hard to, I do like show list Austin, <clears throat> the Chronicle, like, like you said, there's so, there's still so many listings. It's hard to even follow to me, man. Like it's for me, it's like, just if my friends tell me, that's that's more it's easier for me to find out. Yeah, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely try to keep up with what my friends are listening to, and and uh, you know, some of my, some of my friends do podcasts or mixtapes or uh, you know stuff in Mixcloud, and um, yeah, I just I, I kind of find stuff here, there, and everywhere these days, and, mm-hmm. and that's the you know that that's the good news, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's d- different place, but they're still, you know, I, they, Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers, and I, I, you know, I say look for look for the good stuff, look for the people who are trying to trying to do something cool. Definitely, yeah. man. Well, I appreciate you coming down here, and uh, the book it'll be in like like the the major bookstores, the independent bookstores, the records. That's store. a good question. I mean, I think you know, definitely a lot of the independent places. I think uh, will like at least here in Austin. I'm sure they'll have it yeah. places like Book People and and things like that. Um, you know, once you get out of town, uh, you know, probably the, 
I think, I think the further you get out of Austin, you know, it's like you're not necessarily going to have a groundswell of people looking to buy a book that's that specific. But well, I think University of Texas Press has a pretty good reach. Though. They do. They do have a good reach. So I think probably within, a, they've come up hard lately yeah. on the cool book. Level, within within man, like Texas, you know, if you have a if, if there's a cool bookstore in your town, I bet I bet they'll probably be uh, probably be carrying it. But of course, you can always order it directly from uh, you know UT Press as uh, as well. But I definitely. You know, is is the grandson of someone who once uh, ran a bookstore. Uh, you know, I encourage people to go buy it at their local bookstore if they can. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. I would too. I I love Bandcamp. It's probably the best platform on the internet for music in in a lot of ways. But I still, if I can go to Breakaway or who uh, Love Wheel, where I tried to get your book in advance, somebody got it there. Yeah, they we told got me it. Love Wheel had some copies in advance, but I didn't get there in time. Yeah. But I'd rather go support, you know, I'd rather buy it there or when you play. Give you 20 more bucks for your gas or whatever. You know, I, I try to do that. And then there's no shipping. I'm cheap. Yeah, no, <laughs> as, as am I. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cheap, but at the same time, you know, I want to have, I want to have a, an ecosystem yeah. to, to live in. And that's, that's how, you know, how, how we keep that going. So Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming down. Do you have any social medias or anything you want to put out there? People want to get in touch or... Uh, Learn more about the book. Is there a, a website that goes with there this? There is. There's a, uh, I think it's a, curi- a curious mix of people.com. And then I think we're probably most active on our uh, Facebook site. That's, okay. that's where, that's where most of our generation is. Yeah. Uh, so we have a lot, we have a lot there. We all, you know, but we also have Instagram and uh, X as it, as it's now known. But, uh, but I'd, <laughs> I'd say that, yeah, the, 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 the Facebook site is probably most active. And then we also have a YouTube site okay. that has a lot of really cool, uh, old, uh, video, uh, from a lot of these bands. I mean, I don't, again, I mean, Richard's, uh, you know, I call him the engine because he finds stuff that I just, you know, I had no idea, uh, still existed. Uh, he, he's been the one who's kind of rattled the cage when somebody's had an old box of, VHS uh, tapes in their garage or something and uh, has worked to digitize a lot of that stuff. So there's, there, there's a lot of really good uh, uh, stuff out there in that regard that we're, we're, uh, we're slowly but surely working through using some of it for the doc, but then just putting up the raw footage on the, on the YouTube site. That's amazing. Yeah. I got I, YouTube is the spot. That's the, that's, that, that is talk about all the, the streaming services and stuff like YouTube if you take a deep dive into there and find, you'll find your old, your concerts from back then <laughs> on some VHS, you know, from the cavity or something. It's the craziest thing. Yeah. I actually found a, a video that they, they filmed in my high school. Uh, wow. And with that, that I happened to be like walking past. I just, I didn't even know that I was going to be in it, but it's like, I just happened to be one person walking in the hall and I'm like, Oh, who's, Oh yeah, that's me. Cool. And I used uh, to be a tape trader and I, I've only, actually filmed a few times myself but i filmed shutter to think in buffalo long ago and it wasn't didn't come out that great but it's on youtube yeah i didn't put it there i don't have the probably don't even have the tape anymore but it's there yeah the the, to people who grew up with with, you know camera phones in their pocket this this doesn't sound like a big deal but to, to those of us who didn't i mean yeah just having having a video record of any time prior to uh you know the the early aughts or the mid aughts when that started to become commonplace is uh, is is significant, particularly going back into the eighties because that just you know didn't didn't happen that often. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, man, 
everybody get out there and pick up A Curious Mix of People by Greg Beats and Richard Weimark and Chepo Pena. Chepo, yeah, Chepo is, uh, well, he's, Chepo is, I, I guess he's not technically one of the uh, authors. authors of the book. He did design the cover of the book, which okay. is a really cute, uh, cool uh, mural. And, uh, you know, we, we couldn't have done this project without Chepo because I think when we first started, uh, it was, you know, him who was, you know, kind of reaching out, you know, going back through his Rolodex because Chepo uh, was a very intersectional person. He knew everybody everywhere. And uh, so he kind of set up a lot of these interviews, conducted a lot of them. Nice. Uh, yeah. So he, um, you know, I, I think, you know, definitely, I think when the, when the documentary comes out, he's, you know, he's, he's one of the uh, producers and he's still... He's still staying involved. He's also a, a dad of a of a young kid, so he's he's mm. uh, doing a lot of that uh, as well. But um, and then he's still playing music too. Anytime, uh, anytime I can see him or have the opportunity to play with him, it's always a joy. So yeah. nice, nice man. Well, as I say every time, tell a friend to tell a friend. Talk so real. Matt Zanzala is available on all the platforms where you get your podcasts from. I'd love it if uh, you do all those things they do with the podcast. They like, they subscribe, all those things. Share it. But, you know, more likely keep it organic, keep it analog. Tell your friends. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks For sure. It was really nice. Thank you.